Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your big Thursday Buckeye Talk. It's going to be a therapy session. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means. It's a great idea from Nathan. We put out to our tech subscribers, what are the things that you're thinking, but now with the game, with the game is like right here. The game's right here. The season's right here. Are you maybe thinking, uh, I might be too optimistic about this. This maybe won't be quite as good as I think. Or what are you too pessimistic about? And it will be better than you think. And we got to boatload of great answers from our tech subscribers. So listen, here's the secret of podcasting. It's the same show every time with a different framework. So, I mean, there's only so many guys. I don't know. The one thing we couldn't do, Steven, I don't think we could do five days a week on a basketball team when it's like there's seven guys who play. There's as each guy gets his own day of the week every week. Welcome back to Dwayne Washington Thursday on Buckeye Talk. I mean, like that, I, a basketball team. We could not talk about a basketball team as much as we talk about a football team. Not a college team. No, there's just not enough narrative around. Now, if we were covering the NBA, where that's basically a, a reality TV show, yes, but not at the college level. That's true. It's Zed Key Friday here on Buckeye Talk. I don't think that would work. So, but a football team. So we're just talking about stuff, but this is an interesting way to do it. Nathan, this was your idea. Did you intend it as a therapy session? Because I have 52 answers. I, we got more than 52. I'm sorry if I didn't choose yours. I hit kind of all the topics. I read every single one. Thank you, every texter who sent one in. Did you intend your idea as some kind of a therapy session? I think for someone who has an emotional investment in the outcome of the season, I can see it being a therapy session, whether you're going too pessimistic, too optimistic, whatever. For us, it's more of a cover your ass session about like, hey, here's what we've been saying about this team. And we've either been talking up this aspect of it or casting doubt on this aspect of it. And now we just get to hedge our bets. That's true. It's funny that you just said the A word because I was going to bring this up. We had Odell Beckham said that he was. I don't know if I can. Now I'm hesitant about saying, can we say pissed? You can say pissed, can't you? Do you have to change it? I to think picked? so. You, I think you can say it, but people get kind of squeamish when you do for some okay. reason. Because he said he was ticked off, but the P word about being taken out of the game in the last eight minutes the other day. And he that wanted to stay in the game so he could take his A word whooping. And in our headline, we dashed the P word, but we left the A word <clears> in. <throat> and I found that odd that, 
the P word is worse than the A word. It's not what I would have expected. The A that word happens still with a lot of curse words. But the A word's a swear word, isn't it? Is the P word a swear word? So that is P the D word. word, but we say it when we talk about the Ohio State marching band. No, that's so true. There, if, I think all curse words are okay within context of what you're talking about. Well, no, but if they were the best effing band in the land, we wouldn't say <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's, well, yeah, that's too far. Be. That's, that's, that would be amazing. That'd be amazing, <laughs> but that's too far. It's a, so it is that. It's a balance of is it the right curse word or is it too far? I think within context, best damn band in the land is too far. I'm the P word might be a little too much for a guy with blonde hair. Yeah. Okay. Also having a pretty, you know, he's having a bad day today. Let's just be honest. I've turned the P word to ticked multiple times. Yeah. Like covering high school sports, you know, like it's just like, listen, I'm yeah. you can't say that. You couldn't, but I, you couldn't say sucks. You had to say stinks. Yeah. yeah. Stuff like that. I'm really ticked off. I thought I stunk today. <laughs> On Sarnet. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, protecting people from their words. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I have fixed 52 answers to, and here's the thing again. It is sort of admitting to yourself, it's like a deep, dark secret. And this would be a great podcast too, I think, by the way. It's almost like, what is the thing about your spouse that you kind of don't like that you would never tell them? Please text that to us and we'll read it on a podcast. It's sort of like that. You love this football team. You think this football team is going to be great, podcast listeners and tech subscribers, but like right here, ours, we're getting ready to start the season. We made you do it, but now you're kind of like, well, I am kind of worried about this. But also, we open the door for, I'm worried about this, but I'm actually thinking maybe I shouldn't be worried about this. The breakdown, I don't have the exact breakdown of all the answers we got, but what I pulled was a representative sample of the uh, overall answers. So- I have them divided into two files. One is things that people think actually will be better than what they're expecting and things that people think will be worse maybe than what they're expecting. Nathan, what do you think the breakdown is? I have 52 answers. How many of them are things they think will be better and how many are things they think will be worse? I would say, I mean, when you're talking about a, a the Ohio State fan base in general, I think they're probably more optimistic about the season going in. So I would assume that more of the answers are about things they might admit a secret pessimism for. So what's the breakdown of 52? 20, uh, 32 to 20. Steven, what do you think? 28 to 24, I think they might be more optimistic about things that they were probably pessimistic about. 44 to 8. 44 oh, wow. to 8. Not even close. 44 is like, I really think they're going to be good, but here's my deep, dark secret I'm worried about. And eight were like, I'm kind of worried about this, but I actually think it might be fine. And then I think I, I think I, we have to have our own. Do you guys have some? Did you come up with sure. some of your own? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I have one of my own. Mine, shockingly, is a thing that I think is not going to be very good, but now I'm thinking, well, maybe it might be better than I think. Mine is the opposite because as someone suggested, uh, one of the texters suggested we call this the skeptical Doug podcast which is i said we could call it the nine and three podcast and then somebody was like why would you do a nine and three podcast and i was like well i'm just kind of kidding but um <laughs> you know i, I you, know. you should have done one last year see you this is if this is why you brought me in you could have saved yourself last year if you had just done this podcast last year and said you know i think they're gonna be nine and three but they might be like the second best team in the country yeah see that's <laughs> It's and all would have been like you could have always <laughs> no. just pointed back. You could have been like, I know I said nine and three, but I also did the podcast. 
So get off my back. But you don't have that. Now you just have to eat the nine and three. Is this just a way to get out of wrong predictions? Is this what I've been waiting for my yes. whole life? Is <laughs> yes. this podcast? You're welcome. It's giving everybody a parachute when we just did Mark and Dow Monday for the last three months. Yeah, seriously. This is like unmark your markdown Thursday. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're going to go. I don't know. We'll get quite to two hours, but this is the big Thursday podcast. I would like it's, to say the suggestion of call out Doug on the podcast. Our friend Greg C74 uh, did participate this week, and he said, call out Doug, the Penn State lion roar impersonation, SMH, please never again. Thank so that you. Was, that was, thank well, you. I, no, it, no, it no. Definitely thank didn't you. need to go on for like three minutes. Like, it didn't need to go on for three. It should have never happened. But that's how they do it at the game. It goes on for three minutes. I'm trying to recreate an atmosphere here. Uh, All right. So, what should I do first? Should I do the eight things of, hey, maybe this will be better than I think? Or should we start with the 44? Uh, I'm worried this might be worse. We mix let's, it up. Yeah, let's mix it up so we don't get too negative or too positive here. Okay, so we'll start with the things that might be worse. There were a couple sort of themes. Things were kind of grouped together. And there were definitely some defensive things. There were some running back things. And there was an interesting one that I hadn't thought about, but I probably should have, but I think is very important. But let me start with this defense one from the 619, and we'll get into some defense here off the start. I say it should be called the Skeptical Doug Podcast from the 619. Anyway, if I'm skeptical, it's that our defense is replacing a lot. Could be a little thin at defensive tackle, um, and we're breaking in three quarters of the secondary. The linebackers, while they could be solid, there's a reason there are three seniors returning, and they've all gotten their chances to play for years now. Normally at Ohio State, if you've started your sophomore and junior year, you can probably go pro. Maybe Warner, Warner could have gone pro, Pete Warner, but he wasn't going to be any more than a fifth-round pick or later. I'll just say I do think that all those linebackers will be solid this year. I really think year two under Al Washington will pay off. I'm just trying to harness my pessimistic Doug for that one. I'm just messing around. I appreciate what you guys do. So I think the linebacker thing is interesting. And one of the reasons I wanted to start with this, Nathan did not Greg Madison talk about the linebackers today. So if this person, this texture, and we can get into some more is actually saying, well, like, well, you know, I might be, it might be like a good thing. Hey, we have all this experience back at linebacker, but now I'm actually thinking maybe the reason they're back is because they're just kind of average. How did Greg Madison influence your view on that today, Nathan? Well, and not just Madison, but also Ryan Day. When we talked to Ryan Day on Tuesday, I think he said that the defense is going to, or the linebackers should be the strength of this defense. Now, again, is that is that uh, just only relative to the inexperience and and some of the other holes they have at other positions, or is it because he thinks this linebacker crew is really good? I mean, Greg Shudrava works, uh, not sorry, Greg Madison works directly with the linebackers a lot. So I, I – he, he, I think, is going to always talk them up a little bit. Um, but you can tell that he definitely has – obviously, his coaching staff believes in Tough Borland. We don't even have to question that. But, but they wait, are committed I, to Tough Borland. I learned this from the text today because, once again, I did not get on the interviews. They're committed to Tough, tough Borland, and Tough Borland is Tough Borland. But they were saying, like, hey, he looks like an athlete kind of stuff about Tough Borland today. Were they not? Faster? From, skinnier? Uh, wasn't that today? That wasn't from my text. Yeah, I don't know if that was today. Hold on. Let me go back and read my text. Okay. <laughs> this is a new part of the comprehensive. I now will read texts aloud to our podcast audience, to the people who don't get it. Okay. I thought people were he excited. Was, we're excited about tough Borland. He was talking a lot about uh, Pete Warner and talking about you yeah. know, um, why they had, you know, the reason that they moved him inside being that 
um, kind of as we had talked about, like a guy that you can't take off the field. He needs to be out there at all times. They want him and Borland together attacking the football, going to the football at all times. And then talking a lot about, um, you know, the, the versatility that Baron Browning is going to bring to it and kind of the way that he has bought in as far as, you know, being studious as, as a Sam linebacker and trying to really learn that position, you know, going and getting his lunch and bringing it to sit with Madison and, and look over things before practice and, and stuff like that, that he's really like putting some academic work into learning it in addition to just the physical gifts that he already has. So he, he's someone who is very high on that linebacker group and, and Ryan Day is very high on that linebacker group. But again, I, I still need to see whether that is because those guys are all legitimately that, that kind of playmaker. And, and, and Madison specifically, when we talked about Werner said, you know, we've done this before with guys and it turned them into NFL linebackers or it, it kind of accentuated their career. And now they're in the NFL. And he may have been talking about Harrison and some of the people that came before him, or maybe even to some of his other stops, but like taking Werner from Sam and putting him at will, they think could be something that kind of boosts what he's able to do on a football field. That makes me but want all, to look at Michigan stuff now. I bet you he's talking about Michigan stuff. Steven, go ahead. Yeah. But also, because um, the way I kind of – I asked that about why part of the reason they moved Pete Warner there, but I was also trying to get him to talk about whether – like the whole Josh Proctor thing. That was kind of, kind of what I was hinting at, was, is moving him there means somebody else can come on the – you know, it opens up the world for somebody else to come on the field. And Bill Landis kind of asked the same question, and he went – I don't th- I think you ha- the guy that's already on the field, I don't think you have to take that guy off the field. And if the, that Sam linebacker is Baron Browning, now I'm a little intrigued. And what they may be seeing his skill set that leads you to believe that he can cover. Because I think we all kind of came to this conclusion that, that this is maybe where Josh Proctor steps in on third down situations where he's a, a guy who's covering and Baron Brown, he's not on the field as much in third down situations because he's not the will. But the way that Greg Madison talked about it, it seems like he thinks that, him, he said Justin Hilliard as well, but we know what Justin Hilliard's role is on the team. It it, it seems like he thinks Baron Browning can cover and do well, a lot but of we also, that Pete Warner did. Those third down situations, we also thought Browning was coming up to be the rush in yeah. there. So that's what was opening up Sam as much as anything else. It wasn't that you necessarily had to take Browning off from a coverage standpoint. And um, Thayer Munford was really kind of talking up Baron Browning is a, a rush in guy today mm-hmm. saying that like people are going to people better be ready because he can really bring it whatever he said. So um, I think that's still on the table, I think. But I think it's also like I think he may be talking about those first and second down situations where he's doing what Pete Warner did last year as far as firing, following tight ends around that sort of thing. So I, I looked through the text. It turns out that the the text that I got about tough Borland looking athletic was part of my Borland family tech subscription that I subscribed mm-hmm. to. So I got that confused with ours. Did you it's think only, it's only three ninety eight a month? They tried to undercut us. Yeah, jerk. <laughs> I'm sure it's better. I'm sure it's a better deal. Uh, every day they just talk about how tough got his name. Did you think when Greg Madison was talking for both of you, and we can go short answer on this, if he was talking about why the linebackers will be good, because what this texter was getting at is their experience. But I just, I always remember, I can't remember which Purdue coach it was, Nathan, but it might've been Joe Tiller that like, again, when guys, when all of us are doing like preseason rankings and that kind of thing, a lot of, one of the main things you look at is returning starters. And I think it might've been Joe Tiller who was like, listen, sometimes you got starters, starters who are returning that you don't want to return that like starting. And I'm not saying that's the case with these linebackers, but the point that the texter is making is like, listen, like you've been here, you've played a lot. If you were awesome, you would be making money right now, which is a very valid point. It's not anything against those guys, but if they were first rounders, they wouldn't be here. They've done a lot. Browning maybe is the exception. 
But Borland and Warner, if they were first round picks, they wouldn't be here. They'd be like, well, they do what AJ Hawk and Ryan Chazier did. So they're not that, which is fine. But most of what Madison said, Nathan, start with you. Did it sound, did you think it was, this is a guy who really believes in these linebackers. They're going to be good. Or did it sound like coach speak? No, I think they think that these are good linebackers. But again, that doesn't mean that they're like singularly great individual players who would be like first or second round draft picks. I just feel like they think that these guys are experienced and they are talented, that they're not complete chumps that they're putting out there. Um, There is there's a smaller gap there than what I think sometimes fans like to believe. It's like either you're a first round pick or you're just a guy who's filler and we're waiting to to recruit a five-star in over you. And I, I think there's more nuance, much more nuance to it than that. I think these guys, you can have guys who are at a place, even at Ohio state, you can have a guys who are at a place for multiple years and put in a lot of time and do good things for program and who just really aren't NFL prospects and they can still be productive and help you win a lot of games. Can I say something? Not a lot, honestly. I mean, for real, if you think about like the guys who, who really play here and play a, a lot over a couple of years that aren't, legit NFL prospects. It's not a ton. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about, I'm not saying that they can't play somewhere in the NFL. I'm, we're just talking about like that upper echelon draft pick guy. There's no, only 32 of those every year at a, at a, at a sport that has 22 positions spread out. I mean, it's like, it's hard to be a first round pick. Go look at JK Dobbins. Go look at Davon Hamilton. Go look at uh, no, I know, uh, but there's Jonah no J- Jackson. Like, there's no JK Dobbins in this running back. I mean, like that's, I, I don't, I'm right. curious to see where Werner ends up, but again, it's just the thing we always said, we're only comparing this group to every other group on the roster. And but is there a Davon Hamilton on this? Group? I think. Is there a Jonah not, Jackson in this group? I think that's I would, a more reasonable comparison. That's good. I would true. say not coach speak just because it would more be coach speak. If it was just Baron Brownie moving to the will. Because then you're, you're just kind of saying the things that we already kind of think and Pete Warner doing more of the same of what he did last year. But they clearly think that they can unlock something by taking – it doesn't make sense. Offhand, it really doesn't make sense to me, Pete Warner. He was excellent in that position, and so you're going to think he's going to be excellent in it again. So they clearly think that they can unlock something in Pete Warner by moving him to Will, which can either backfire and they're just thinking too much, or it's going to end up being an amazing decision. So I don't think that's coach speak. I think the idea when they start throwing other guys name in there that we know aren't going to have this role, that's the coach speak. The place where it might be coach speak is that he's talking over why they didn't think they could do what we originally thought they might do. And, and that was put Browning in mm-hmm. at will. That may be where there's coach speak where he's kind of talking him up as a Sam, as opposed to yeah. saying he can't be our will. He can't be the guy that we don't take off the field. All right. You know what? Let's take a quick break. We're going to dive into a lot more stuff. We'll be right back on Buckeye talk. All right, back with our secret therapy session about things you think you might be wrong about heading into this 2020 Ohio State football season that starts with the home game for the Buckeyes noon against Nebraska on Saturday. A lot of defensive stuff, and a lot of it related to Kerry Combs, but let me deal sort of generally with defense first. From the 5-6-1, I think in general the defense is being overestimated. The defense was good last year. But now we're without Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, Jordan Fuller. Big leaders, reliable. I'm particularly still not sold on the linebackers. I believe most of most or all of whom return. I thought Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne really exposed them last year. Those guys have been around forever, and none have the highest ceiling. Can't believe I'm saying this, but Baron Browning has been disappointing. Couple all this with limited contact and, and tackling drills, and I think we could see some very surprising numbers put up against us this year. That's Ron in Jupiter, Florida. Follow that up with kind of what's happening in college football from the 740. For me, it's got to be the defense, especially after witnessing how poorly 
defenses from across the country thus far are playing. I'm afraid that even though my expectations weren't extremely lofty, that they still could disappoint if they look like the rest of the nation's defenses. Nathan, that part of it, how should anybody, any Ohio State person who has this defense thing in the back of their head, how would you think the national stuff should or should not affect their thinking? There's an inclination that I have, and it, it's it's this is one of those things where it's just the bias of, of being around a team all the time, but they have talked so much about being aware of that that I'm not really that worried about it being a huge problem for Ohio State early on. I feel like when you've got a team that has especially veteran linebackers, they've got coaches that I think are – are smart enough to be prepared for that. I think it really is something that they've been kind of preaching fundamentally and, and the extra preseason, I think ends up helping them. The lack of contact. I don't know how much contact you really missed out on compared to a regular preseason. You still got like three weeks of it. Um, And if that is a problem, if, if, if that, if the lack of contact and tackling and stuff is a problem for, college football in the preseason, I think you welcome that as an Ohio State fan because nobody has to, you know, this Ohio State team does not have to defend this Ohio State offense. Everybody else does. That's where it could really be a, a benefit more than a problem that, that maybe there wasn't as much contact or tackling in the preseason. Yeah, there are some pros and cons to starting late. One of the pros is that they got to see exactly what they maybe should be focusing on for the rest of their preseason. They got to see, okay, tackling's an issue. So the moment we're able to do some contact stuff, we probably need to make that a focal point. Because if not, we're going to look like what Alabama looked like against Ole Miss and on down the road. Harold in the 858 drilling down on a thing that uh, more than a few texters brought up. I'm concerned about the level of, of the level of change on defense, losing great players, but more importantly, big time coaching changes. Last time we had wholesale coaching changes on defense. We hired two guys from Michigan and then we fielded one of the be- best Buckeye defenses ever. So, okay, but this new defensive coordinator may have petered out. It's, 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 it's people, this is hard because, and we've sort of talked about this. People love Kerry Combs, but this is the kind of thing. I think this is why this is almost the thing that fans don't really want to say from the seven, three, four. Hey guys, love the pod. The one thing I think may be wrong with Ohio state this year is the defense specifically coordinating of it. I just have fears of excellent position coaches making the jump. Coaching a room is like being really good at dancing solo at parties and everyone loving it. Coordinating is performing a really good waltz with partners. Some guys just don't have the feel for it. Another one, and this is related to Greg Madison a little bit, and I want to get something on this. This is Clint from darn near Indiana, but he didn't say darn, but I didn't figure out. It's not a band reference, so I can't say the D word. Hmm. From the 937, it's Clint. I have one concern, Kerry Combs. We all know our offense will be amazing this year because we got older and wiser. We have the players on defense, but as we all know, poor coaching can hinder great talent, i.e. Bill Davis. I am not saying Kerry is a poor coach. He's just unproven as a coordinator. How much do you think Madison will be involved in play calls? So let's hold that question first. Steven, anybody expressing this concern, this secret back-of-the-head concern about Kerry Combs, what would you say to him? I don't blame them because it's literally just defensive coordinator. If it was co-coordinator, you probably are a little more eased about it because Jeff Hathley was a co-coordinator and that was his first time being in a coordinator position and he excelled at it. But it was also, he was working together with Greg Madison and not necessarily just being the guy who just gets the final word, regardless of what everybody else says. And yeah, he's, he's Larry Johnson right now. He's a guy who specializes in turning a certain position group in the first round draft picks, but hasn't shown more of that. And, you know, when, when, when this fan base saw 2018 and saw how it turned around in 2019, they don't want to go backwards. And that's maybe what the fear is. I don't blame them for that. I will tell you that he's better than Alex Grinch. So 
Oh, that yeah. is the other thing, too. That yeah. is for sure. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, it's not hard to be better than Alex Grinch right now. So. But here's the other yeah. thing. Like, who was the defensive coordinator when Ohio State was having problems with its linebackers under Bill Davis? I mean, it wasn't – it was – Greg Schiano. Right. So I think it's – in my opinion, I think is if you feel like – we know that Kerry Combs is a good defensive backs coach. We know Larry Johnson's a good defensive line coach. We believe, I think, now that Al Washington is a pretty good linebackers coach after we saw that group take a step forward last year. And, and the, the way that the, those players talk about him, I think, is genuine, that he was getting better things out of them than we were getting before. So I think I, I, I'm, I'll eat this later if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like you get you get great position coaches at all those levels, and then I, I, I'm not as concerned about – calling plays on game day. I think it's more about preparation in terms of how you develop the talent and acquire the talent, but then develop the talent and also how you prepare your game plan during the week. than it is conjuring things on game day to, to out scheme the other team. I don't think that's how Ohio state's going to need to win a lot of games, especially in big 10 play. I do so, agree with the idea of the fact that the coordinators were probably bad, but also the position coaches didn't help ease that pain. I well, do agree with that. Shiano and Davis brought out the worst of each other in that season. Yeah. That the linebacker play was bad because Shiano used them poorly and then mm-hmm. they it was all it all fed on itself. But the second part of this, Nathan, how much do you think Madison will be involved in the play calls? What came up with Greg Madison on Wednesday, just sort of talking about anything about he had, how he and Kerry Combs will work together on this? So, yeah, he was asked today, are you going to be upstairs? Are you going to be downstairs? And he's going to be up in the booth, which I think he said is his first time since like 1990 with Texas A&M that he's yeah. going to be upstairs. So that's a little bit of a change. I think that makes a lot of sense to me because I think you want Kerry Combs down on the field with your players, just with his personality. I think that's almost – you're missing something if you leave that up in the booth, um, although they might be able to hear him from up there this year with no fans in the stands. Um, and, and, but I, so he's going to be kind of overseeing things. He feels like he can see, you know, his responsibility is more the front seven. He thinks he can see that well from upstairs and, and relay things with, between him and Kerry Combs. But it's also obvious, like, it's interesting that you mentioned that about Shiano and, and Davis and kind of bringing out the worst in each other. There does seem to be the fact that Kerry Combs was here before there's already some camaraderie here and some, some, uh, some connection I think that these guys have with each other. I think that's going to make this an easier transition this season. And um, I, I also think that the, the way that they have things split up, I think just also makes a lot of sense. I think you've got a guy who handles kind of the front side and is maybe more the, the run defense coordinator in some ways. And then Kerry Combs, maybe having more of an overall view of it, but also more of a secondary specialty. I think that can work a lot of, well, too. I mean, I think that's it worked last year, obviously, with Madison and Halfley. But last year, usually the guy who's really calling it's upstairs. Mm-hmm. Tom Herman, when he was here, was upstairs. Call it because you see everything. This was a big right. thing when Tom Herman left and Ed Warner and Tim Beck were the play callers. And they put Beck upstairs initially and had Warner down on the sideline. But really, Warner was was caught was more in charge of calling the plays, but they wanted Warner down on the field because he was the offensive line coach and they wanted him down there with his guys. And then he's trying to call plays from the sideline and like, it didn't work. And they wound up having to put him upstairs in the middle of the year. And that was kind of an issue. This is interesting. This is how they always say it. When it was Chris Ash and Luke fickle as co-coordinators, it's like, yes, Luke has the front Ash has the back, but who's really calling it in the end. And there's, you're calling more than one thing. Sometimes you're calling what the guys up front are going to do. And then you're calling something else, how you're going to defend behind them. So are you blitzing? Are you running a stunt? You know, what are you doing? Um, Did you have a rushman package in that kind of thing? And then behind it, are you running cover one? Are you running cover three? Like you do have two separate calls, but you want to combine them. But certainly everything we've, 
everything that's been told us is that like this is Carrie's show. So actually, there is a part of me that is like, if it's Carrie's show and he's on the sideline, and then it's like, well, I think we should be doing this, but I can't exactly see it. And then Madison's the one who's seeing it. I am curious about that because the last time they tried something like that, it didn't work and they wound up moving a guy. And they didn't, they ended up not having the guy start up top because they wanted him on the field because of the coaching, because of his guys, because he wanted to be with his guys. And, and everything you're saying, Nathan, yeah, Kerry Combs on the sidelines, magic. But if he's really calling it and he needs to see it, and he needs to make adjustments. It's like, what's more important on game day for him now? To be there, being an energy guy on the sideline and connecting with his defense or being up top because he's calling it and seeing everything. So now I am extra intrigued about this with the news that this is how they're going to start off. I'm not shocked by it. I'll say a prediction now. I would not be surprised if Kerry Combs ends up upstairs at some point this season. Because they just decide, as much as we miss him on the sideline, he's not here to be an energy guy anymore. He's here to call a defense. Mm. And Al Washington can be our energy guy. You know, Matt Barnes. Tell Matt Barnes to jump around like Kerry Combs. <laughs> Kerry's got to see stuff. So I am really intrigued by that. Really intrigued by that. But there's a lot of stuff, not just with the defense. We have a couple answers specifically about the, the secondary, which, again, that Combs is in charge of. This is Brian in California in the 4-4-0. I may be too optimistic in the defensive back's ability to progress and improve throughout the season. My confidence in them being able to perform at a college football playoff level is based on Combs' previous ability to always develop players and seemingly have everyone playing at an all-conference level by year's end. This week I've been realizing that's a big if. Sometimes it's hard to remove the scarlet and gray glasses. Let me give you another one on the secondary. This one is from the 502 with Anthony in the 502. I think I am much higher on the secondary than many on the beat seem to be. And that might be due to scarlet color glasses. This group has potential, but it's possible they don't rise to where I hope they will. One more. This is a Greg Schiano flashback. This is from the 513 uh, from Clint. I'm really worried about the secondary with new faces on the field on the sideline. I'm having flashbacks of all those deep 50-50 balls we couldn't defend under Shiano coach defenses. So I think this is a thing that is going to run through this, and we'll have it, we'll have it come up other times. They're the, the general Ohio State idea, and I've learned over time, I used to be much more pessimistic than it happened so many times. They lose great talent, and it's like, how are they going to replace this, this great talent? And most of the time, they replace the great talent because they're Ohio State. There's always somebody next. And so after a while, you start assuming it. And then every now and then, once you fall into the assumption, you feel you're something pulling you back and saying like, well, of course, they will be fine. And it's like, well, are we sure that Seven Banks is going to be as good as Jeff Okuda? Are we sure that Cam Brown's going to be as good as Damon Arnett? And you feel that tug. And it's a very normal, reasonable tug. It's just that so many times it's like, yeah, those guys were just as good too. As it applies to the secondary, what do you think, Stephen, about any of this creeping into people's heads? I don't think I'm as worried about seven banks as I am the slot and the safety positions. And one, because of what Chris Olave said about him today, saying after Sean Wade, he gives him the toughest time when Nathan asked about it. But also, Sean Wade wasn't bad in the snaps he had last year. He started some some games when Damon Arnett was out, and he played pretty decent. It, it wasn't a glaring weakness that, you know, Damon Arnett wasn't in the game or – one in the game when he was in there. So I, I'm not as worried about his progression. 
I am more worried about the slot just because nobody played in the slot but Sean Wade last year. And I'm worried about the safety because, I mean, we just don't know there and nobody else played safety but Jordan Fuller. So in those three spots, because literally nobody played meaningful snaps, I'm interested, yeah, because there's no experience. So it's, I'm not, you know, scared or anything. I'm not like overly pessimistic, but I am a little on a little, you know, tempered in, in my intrigue in it. But with seven banks, I'm not as worried. Let me, let me jump on this uh, specifically about seven banks, and then I want to do a Jordan Fuller thing before we get your thoughts on the secondary, Nathan. This is from Andrew in the 3-3-0. I could be wrong, but I, what he might be wrong about is seven banks being an all-Big Ten cornerback and being a major answer to everyone's defensive questions. It's year one on the field. He will get targeted far more because of Sean Wade on the other side in his first year. COVID made it more difficult than normal. It's possible there might be some sluggish, sluggishness early or some sloppy technique. So he believes in, in seven banks, but he's feeling that pull just a little bit. And then what you mentioned, Stephen, about Jordan Fuller from the 614, I think I'm in the same boat as Doug. I'm realizing just how great Jordan Fuller was to this defense. The single high safety is so important that I think we're going to have to have more boomer bus plays out of Proctor or Hooker versus eraser plays from Fuller. Everybody is salivating at Marcus Hooker because they heard Matt Barnes say that, that he's a ball hawk and they have visions of Malik Hooker. I have my doubts that he's Malik Hooker, and I have my doubts that either of them are as eraser-like as Jordan Fuller. Any of this secondary conversation, Nathan, do you think this is a reasonable thing for people to have in the back of their heads? hundred percent. I mean, there's going to be some regression here. There's there, there, this defense has less margin for error than last year's did. It just, it, it does like, you don't have, you know, last year you had Sean Wade as your slot corner and two other first round cornerbacks and they were on the field at all times. And this year, like it has to be proven. Like we're, they're talking about, you know, Marcus Williamson has had a really good preseason. That doesn't mean you can't fast forward and say then Marcus Williams is going to have the same year that Sean Wade did. You can talk about how, how, you know, Kerry Combs can talk about how much he likes, how long and, and fast uh, seven banks is. That doesn't mean he can do the same things that Damon Arnett did. I mean, it's, it's your, there, there's going to be a step back here. And I think the safety one is one that is, is really important because, you know, we talked so much last year about the eraser thing and all that stuff. And, and, we, I think it, it, we, we read in a lot to the fact that they talked about Marcus Hooker in the same way that they want someone to be what Jordan Fuller was, but Jordan Fuller actually did it. Marcus Hooker could barely get on the field last year. So again, I, I think it's reasonable for people to have, to have doubts, but I don't think a doubt is necessarily someone saying, you know, that it's one of those things that teams always spin it and be like, well, nobody believed in us. And like, that's not really what we're saying. It's just like you, a guy who proved at this at a big, all big 10 level left. And now it's you who couldn't play last year. So maybe you can do it, but you got to prove it. You got, we got to see it. It's hard because there's so, there's so many examples where you saw it, but it's like, oh, like Eli Apple's leaving. He was the number 10 pick in the draft. draft. What are you going to do? Oh, they're going to play this guy whose hamstrings explode. It's like, okay, I don't know. I mean, Marshawn Lattimore was a pretty high-ranked recruit, but is he as good as Eli Apple? And it's like, he's better than Eli Apple immediately. He got on the field and set the world on fire. So it's like, that's the hard thing. Can I, can I tell you? I'm not here for people to feel sorry for me, but good. Yeah. <laughs> Buckeye talk, <laughs> but I, this is not a great beat to be skeptical on. <laughs> 
that there's if there if I covered other teams, I wouldn't have as much fun because it'd be like I'd be like, well, I'm not so sure they can go seven and five. And then they'd go like four and eight. I'd be like, see, my skepticism was right. And it's like we had a great time covering that four and eight season. But I am now. I mean, I am skeptical. I like and 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 gradually some of my skepticism actually has been beaten out of me because every time Marshawn Lattimore heals his hamstrings and is a first team All-American, it's like, well, you, you, you idiot. What were you skeptical about? You know, and every time they just run like the next guy out there who is absolutely as good as the guy before him, it you start not having doubts that they're going to do it. But then I still wonder, but like every time, like literally every time it's like, well, what are you, how are you going to replace that five-star recruit? It's like with the next five-star recruit will be fine. But you still, I still have a part of me that's like, well, they had some really good guys that they lost. Are we sure the next guys are as good? Even though most of the time, the answer is pretty much yes. I think some you, of the comfort to- with that one was also, that was consistently the same coach. Whether it was Bradley Roby, Eli Apple, Marshawn Lattimore, Denzel Ward, it was always Kerry Combs. Well, Kerry Combs hasn't been here for the for these 2018 guys the entire time. He recruited most of them, but they also had to deal with, you know, a year of Alex Grinch and Tabor Johnson. And then they had Jeff Halfley, and now they're getting him. They haven't had a consistent coach there to where you go, oh, yeah, that coach has just been doing this. Kerry Combs is coming back, and he's coming back in a different role, which also probably plays into some of the skepticism because all of his focus isn't on whoever the Marshawn Lattimore or Malik Hooker is. Skepticism is also relative to the expectations or the, the the standard that you're judging that team by. I mean, I previously covered a program where you look at this, the schedule before the year and you're like, you know, if everything goes absolutely right, if everything breaks right, I think they can get the six wins. And here you're talking about a team that you're, you're at the beginning of the year. It's like, can this team win a national championship or not? So that's what we're talking about here. I don't think there's any question that this secondary is a, a, a good Big Ten secondary. Is it a secondary that does what you need it to do against in, in maybe the very most important big 10 games in the big 10 championship game and against Clemson, Alabama, whoever they face in the postseason. That's the standard that we judge this team by. So I think that skepticism is always uh, healthy and should always be there because you're not just judging them by, well, can this guy capably play a position? Cause that's not the Ohio state standard. At least so I've been told. You are correct. And we all, y'all learn. I mean, everybody learns it when you get here. It's like, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. And I do think now if, if I wound up in a situation, whether it was this team or another team, but like you just ended up covering a team, like sort of you go in reverse, you know, I mean, if the New York times said, do you want to cover Rutgers? And then you go cover Rutgers. I don't the, like my whole, right. I mean, like you'd really have to go through like a decompression a little bit. You'd get the bends being like, okay, maybe they can go three and nine. That'd be a great first season. It's just, it's just a whole different world. And this world is weird. That, that I am very confident saying, even though I've never covered any other college football team, this is not normal Buckeye talk. I don't think people appreciate that one of the best coverage teams in the country covers Rutgers football. They're awesome. Yeah. Really, really good. Our guys at at NJ.com, our guys at NJ.com, Keith Sargent, James Cratch on the beat. They're awesome. Todrick Hunt covering recruiting and Steve Politi, the columnist who writes a lot about Rutgers is one of the best columnists in America. And they cover the heck out of a team that's going to win like a game and a half this year. It's unbelievable. Um, They should go. They should just, if they could, could you just pick up Clemson and move it to Newark? New Jersey. (laughs) Would that work? Dab. I I saw, I don't, I think there's actually a guy, it's an NFL draft analyst that, that I know a little bit 
who I thought maybe I, I just saw a thing that was like, might the Jets hire Dabo? That if the Jets go like 0 and 16, draft Trevor Lawrence and hire Dabo. And like, that's a thing. I don't know if it's, I don't know. It'd be interesting. Yeah. I want to stay on defense here a little bit still in the 304. I missed this before in the linebackers. Although you've been cautious with your opinions, I think you may be overselling this team's ability to stop other good offenses consistently enough to dominate lesser opponents and beat the great ones. I trust this coaching staff to play its best players, which is why I'm concerned that the linebacker lineup makes me constantly think this is the best they can do. Interesting view in the back of your head on the linebackers overall defense view in the back of your head from the six one four. I'm still very leery of the defense losing to number two and number three NFL draft picks. That's just a fact. Their two best defensive players last year were the second and third picks in the NFL draft. That's insane. And replacing them with question marks doesn't give me much confidence. This is still undoubtedly an elite offense, but it makes me wonder if we'll see an Oklahoma like dynamic winning every week. 60 38 is all good, but it makes me nervous for what could happen when Clemson or Alabama are on the menu. I sure hope I'm wrong, but the defense that takes the field Saturday still shares some of the same pieces as the dreadful 2018 defense. Fingers crossed for a pleasant surprise. I am intrigued by it. Like, I, And again, this is not what people actually think. It's the stuff in the back of their head. So I think that's like totally fair to have that. I think it's a reasonable thing. I wouldn't have it at the front of your front of your brain. I do think it's an overall, it's a thing to have at the back of your brain. I, I think it's say- a perfectly reasonable. Like if you say this team can, if this team is some version of LSU last year, not saying they have to be what LSU did last year, but you're some version of LSU where you have a few like standout, clearly great players on defense, mm-hmm. but you're not like a shutdown defense, but you're a really good defense. And then you have this offense that just blows people out of the water that's obviously good enough to win a national championship. You cannot be some version of what Oklahoma was the last three years. You're just going to get dusted. I think that's right. Defensive line a little bit. Defensive line from the 706. I could be wrong about the D line. I've been very optimistic about our defensive ends. I think there's a good chance that Tyreek Smith and uh, Zach Harrison are both all American level players. That may be too optimistic. So that's, I mean, I just, this is the tug, right? The back of your head tug that it's like, I'm super excited about Tyreek Smith and Zach Harrison. They're the next guys in line, but maybe not. Maybe I'm not sure. This is a really good talent overview overall. Sort of the point I was making about, they just cycle talent through here from the 937. I feel like we may be overvaluing how good this team is. They're replacing great proven talent with talented yet unknown guys in most spots. Zach Harrison, no doubt, will be good, but he won't be Chase Young. Chase Young's don't come around very often. We love these freshman receivers, but K.J. Hill was as dependable as they come. Trey Sermon and Master Teague should be solid, but they don't equal J.K. Dobbins. Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett were first-rounders. Wade will be a first-rounder, but do we know about Seven Banks? Is he a star? No doubt this team will be very good, but there is no way there aren't growing pains. Are we good enough to hang with the top two? Are we good enough to make it nine weeks without a slip-up? because of a youngest team, youngest team in a strange world this season. I was supremely confident last year. This year, I'm only regular confident. That might have been the best sentence I read of the 100-plus responses we got. Stephen, is that an encapsulating sentence if perhaps people are sliding from supremely confident in 2019 to regular confident in 2020? Yeah, it's a lot to replace just because of the numbers they put up. But I think my response to the the youngish part would be, 
I mean, the teams we're going to compare them to, one starting a brand-new quarterback who's got talent around him, and the other one, their defensive line is a bunch of young guys. Literally two of them are true freshmen who showed up in January. And you see what Clemson is doing to teams. And Alabama, yeah, they had the one game game where you know it was a shootout. But other than that, Alabama has handled teams. I think if that's who we're putting Ohio State in the conversation with, then that should be the, how you should maybe look at some things where, it's, yeah, it's young, but it's talented. And it might have an ugly game or an ugly quarter, but for the most part, they're going to handle their business. Nathan, you were nodding along to that sentence from the texter. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the perfect way to look at it. And it's kind of the way I have looked at it in my analysis from the beginning, from the end of last season was that there's a lot here. And I was all of us, I think, predicted Ohio State to win a national championship this year. And I think that's a it's a completely reasonable uh, goal to expect. But I mean, last year's team, like where was the hole on last year's team? Like we looked at it from so many angles and we were like by the end of that season, we were like, this team doesn't really seem like it has any obvious flaws. And I don't think you can say that about this year's team. I think you go into the season saying like, man, there could be some real flaws here. And I almost wonder if like that's affected how much we've talked about the offense being like this unstoppable force because it more it more justifies the optimism we have for the team as a whole. Because And it helps – we want to talk ourselves on how much that's going to over um, – obscure maybe some of the problems on defense. Um, so, yeah, it, it's certainly something that I'm keeping in mind as the season starts to unfold just because there are just still so many places, especially on defense, where I feel like they have to prove some things, beginning with who's even available to play in this first game. This person in the 419, they're saying three things they're banking on, and I can't tell if, like – these are the things they're banking on, and now they're actually worried about it or if they're just still feeling all good about it. But two of the things related to defense in the 419, I think we're assuming that Hooker and Proctor are Ohio State starter level and that Marcus Williamson command the slot. And then also that Tommy Togiai is a star at defensive tackle, and he's assuming that um, Antoine Jackson and Tyler Friday can cover the other interior spot while they deal with uh, Teron Vincent and Haskell Garrett getting back. I do think I'm not I think it's reasonable to have a little bit of a question mark about Marcus Williamson. Just when it's a little bit of an older guy who's been around has not really seemingly been at the front of the discussion very much and then all of a sudden like that's that's a really important job. That can be a really important job because we've seen them what has happened when they've had trouble there. And at times I mean Sean Wade had some trouble with Rondale Wade with Rondale Moore in 2018. When Sean Wade was in the first half of his season, now Rondale Moore was giving everybody trouble, but you know, a lot of this stuff, like Sean Wade's awesome. Now he wasn't as good right away as he is right now. He grew into that position a little bit and Rondale Moore would have, would have given anybody trouble that night. But I do think, uh, you know, it's not that I don't think they will be okay, but, but, I, but one of the things I think in the, a little bit in the back of my head is a little bit Marcus Williamson related, and maybe that's not fair. And Marcus Williamson can cram it up my butt. <laughs> like I, like I'll take that out. Let's let's cut that out. <laughs> of all the things we've talked about out on this pod, <laughs> that's the that's the t- part that's too far. That part. I meant to oh. say he can show me that my opinion was incorrect, and I chose to express it that way. But I don't know. Is that are you guys there, or do you guys are you guys kind of like no? Marcus Williamson's been around. He's a veteran. He's going to lock down the slot. No, I'm a little um, intrigued, one, because he's a smaller slot guy, which I guess from what Kerry Combs said, he probably fits that position more. But, yeah, he hasn't played it 
and the guy you just pulled out of the slot is the typical type of corner Kerry Combs looks for. So I, I I understand physically he maybe matches up with slots better, but that doesn't mean that you know he's going to play the position as well. I think if Kerry Combs was here last year, they would not have put Marcus Williamson at slot and put Sean Wade on the outside because he fits more like what they usually put on yeah. the outside. I think they would have put the better corner at slot corner. And Sean Wade is clearly a better cornerback than Marcus Williamson is. So I, I, I think it's absolutely, he's one of the people on the list of people who have something to prove this season. Again, it's not, when you say that, you're not saying, I think you're a bad player. It's like you, it's, it's, this is a meritocracy. Like you have to get on the field and show us you're a good player. We just haven't seen that from Marcus Williamson. We don't, nobody, watching the end of these games when they're crushing Maryland and Rutgers like so he may have been breaking up passes against those teams they probably weren't even throwing the ball anyway but like we need to see him do it against the the better the frontline offenses in the Big Ten again if you guys want to be able to participate in the podcast like this and send us just the boatload of great responses we got to Nathan's idea of what might you be wrong about with this with this season you could be a tech subscriber at 614 350. I'm going to eventually give my own phone number because I just about gave my own phone number. And then people are just going to be texting me like, can I be a subscriber? I'm going to be like, is this my mom? It's 614. It's going to be like with Kramer and a movie phone where you'll just end up having to like all these send all the texts back out to all those people individually because you don't want to correct that they have the wrong number. You don't admit that you had the wrong number. And I'll just be free. It's just, it is just me t- texting me personally. Oh, that's true. You could some, You could just recoup the money that way too. That's true. Under the table, the under the table tech subscription. Charging five ninety nine, and then and then I'd give you the real stuff. That's what I said. It's like this is the oh now this is just Doug texting on his own. As I said before, there's stuff in my phone that would, you know, you just talk crap about people behind their back. From the five one three, this is going to transition us a little bit. And the reason it Great maybe said a tech subscription six one four three five zero three three one five. This transitions us because this texture said I can't pick one, so I'm picking two. I'm the guy paying, right? It's like, yeah, you can do it. That's the thing about being a tech subscriber. I am dismissive of people on Twitter. I am not dismissive of tech subscribers because one of the things that you get to do if you pay me money is yell at me. They said Ohio State always reloads when players go to the NFL and they have depth on defense, but do they have enough star power? Who is the guy to make a play on defense or is just a bunch of quality players with no top stars good enough to make it a championship level team. So I think the star power thing is interesting, but there are other points going to transition us. There's maybe wondering in the back of their head that a season will happen at all. Other conferences are powering through, but will the big 10 do positive COVID tests require players and staffs missing games to jeopardize the season or worse. And that's where I want to go with some of this stuff, because I wasn't necessarily anticipating this. I don't know that it was the like intent of your question, Nathan, but some people went here from the 614. I think I may be overly optimistic and that I'm not seriously expecting any of Ohio State's games to be canceled because of COVID. I just find myself subconsciously assuming they'll get to play and dominate all nine games. And maybe the reality is there's a significant chance they miss one and that one fewer game when they're starting with fewer games than other conferences has real repercussions for the way they're viewed by the playoff committee. Another COVID answer. This is from the 614. Doug, my biggest concern is that this country has blown past a second COVID wave and we're speeding toward a third. It's out of control. And I worry college football will run aground in late November. I hope that I'm wrong. Another COVID from the 330, the COVID and Big Ten rules will lead to multiple games being canceled, not giving Ohio State enough games to be considered for the playoffs. So they're worried about that. 
And then this is this is sort of like twofold. It's like some people are in the back of their head are worried about COVID, and some people are worried about the way b- the Big Ten rules will react to things. From the nine one two, it's Tom in Savannah. I'm really pessimistic about the Big Ten's overly cautious COVID protocols ruining our season. Let's say Justin Fields gets a false positive in week eight and misses Michigan and the championship weekend and the crossover games. If we lose one of those games, the playoffs would be in serious doubt. It feels like it's going to get us at some point. We just don't know who or when. And then this is, I'll, I'll read this. I, you know, people have various opinions on COVID from the seven fun nine, seven one nine. I just want a fair election, a full football season. And I want people to stop getting punished for getting sick. We as a society are literally punishing people for getting sick. Like they wanted to get sick. The big 10 is punishing entire teams because a couple guys will get a sickness that they definitely did not want to get. These players are working their butts off to obey every stupid protocol and guideline and suggestion, yet they will still get punished if they get sick. That's my biggest fear. If they want to play ball and the other team wants to play ball, then why the heck are some big cats in suits telling them they can't? I'm so sick of the big 10. Nathan, what do you think of these people who, who it's not front burner, but it's COVID that is what is making them pessimistic in the back of their heads. Well, I mean, I guess I'd start by saying, go ask Florida fans right now if they think that the SEC's COVID protocol should be more lax or should have been stricter because maybe they'd be playing football right now. Maybe they wouldn't have 30-some positive cases on their team. I mean, I understand what people's concerns are, that if, if, if there's a false positive right before a game and you, you can't get the guy cleared in time to play, or if somebody important does get COVID, which everybody's important, but I'm talking football important. If somebody football important gets actually gets COVID and they can't play for three weeks. And then now that creates a hole in your season. I understand where they're coming from, but I don't see any other way to better ensure that there actually can be a season that you actually can get the bulk of your roster from the first game to the end of the season. I think that's what all of these, the, and it's more it, the pen. It's not even a penalty for testing. It's the, the result of a positive test is is at the end of the process. The important thing is at the beginning of the process where you're testing everybody every day and trying to keep that second infection and that fourth infection and that 16th infection when it starts multiplying, keeping those out of your program. I think that's the only way to do this. I think I'm not so much concerned about the harshness of what happens if someone does test positive compared to uh, because of the strictures that they've now had in place for several weeks with the daily testing to ensure that the that any of those very first po- cases get caught before they can become an infection that runs through the whole team. Okay, so that last thing got you fired up. And I get it. Here's my question, I guess, that I think if you're telling people what should you be a little more worried about in the back of your head as it relates to Ohio State, is it A, that an infection runs through the team like just happened at Florida with more than 30 positive cases at Florida. And that it leads to a postponement of a game. And in the big Ten's case, it would not be a postponement, but a cancellation because there's no room to postpone. Florida had a game postponed, but they can wiggle. The sec has wiggle room. Is it that fear or is it sort of a single test? And like what happened with Nick Saban, right? Whether that's a false positive or however you characterize it, he wound up being able to coach against Georgia. But if it had if it had happened two days later in the week, maybe he wouldn't have. But let's say that's Justin Fields, or let's say that's Sean Wade that that happens to. What should fans fear more that that the virus rips through the team and they lose a game as a result, or that maybe a critical guy here or there misses a game or a couple games 
because the testing is so strict and maybe there's somehow a, a false positive that would pop in there. I think that the second of those two things is a, is a bigger danger simply because this testing is set up to, to prevent those um, break, outbreaks that other conferences have dealt with it, but it, it does increase the chances that a single person could have, could, could test positive or have again, like the, the, the false positives that then can't be confirmed in time in order to get a team on the field. But I would, I would say two things. Number one, I think because we've already, as far, as far as it relates to the playoffs, I think if a team wins, it's obviously not a problem. And then even if a team loses, depending on who they lose to and how they lose, I think that's something the committee will take into account this year of all years. I think they will. If Ohio state um, misses Justin Fields for the last three games of the regular season and they lose a close game to Michigan, but they were uh, obliterating people every other week. And then he comes back and plays in the big thing championship game and they win. They're going to the playoffs. Right. I mean, I, I don't think the, the committee is going to hold them out. It's going to depend on what else happens, obviously, around the country. If there's four other undefeated teams somehow, then maybe they don't. But I think they're going to the playoffs in that scenario. So that's again, I don't think there's a big fear factor about that. I think I mean, this is maybe I know people are going to react poorly. To this the beginning of this question. I can't remember if it was the text who said it or if it was you who said it, but I think they said something about it, about possible kind of resurgence of the virus in general in society coming. I still think maybe that's the biggest problem. Like if this gets really bad again and they have to shut down campuses throughout the Big Ten, that's where the bigger I mean, the bigger threat may still be that there just ends up not being a season at all than some little compromise affecting Ohio State season. And we obviously, I mean, in, in the Midwest, there's uh, Chicago Tribune reported that mayors of Big Ten cities wrote a letter to the Big Ten and sort of said, like, what's going on here? I know didn't Ann Arbor has the city of Ann Arbor has some kind of shutdown order, but it doesn't apply to the football team. There's going to be life shut down college football. And then people sort of push college football through, even though life actually didn't right. get fixed. So life could infringe. Again, life could infringe yeah. for sure. Big Ten football did not the, – the chancellors and presidents did not cancel the fall season because a bunch of athletes were testing positive and getting sick and going in the hospital. Like, that's not what happened. It was because of just what was happening in general out there and the threat that they thought that it posed to athletes. And I think if we start to see the cases rise to that level again to where it, it's considered this – now, maybe as a society, the other half of me says, like, I think we've maybe just moved on and we're not going to – shut things down again the way we did the first time but we've also things are about to change in this country in a big way in a couple of weeks potentially so who knows i think there's a lot of, that's still on the table as it relates to this virus so i think that's a thing to have in the back of your head uh, i think that's uh, that's not where my head was but that if it's in the back of your head i think it's i mean covid is covid's at the front of all of our heads but that that's in the back of your head as a college football fan i think that's I wouldn't put it at the front of your head because you can't control it. I mean, do what you can to control it, wear a mask or be safe yourself and your community for you and your family and for your community. And then everyone affects the community. And if your community has a college football team in it, your behavior actually can have a small, tiny effect. But I don't put it in front of your head because try to have fun with football. So I think back of your head's the right spot for that. I know we're doing, it's like we ended up because people feel so good about this team, the vast majority of this podcast is like, well, this might go wrong. But it's, again, to remind people, it's not that people actually think it's going to go wrong. It's people saying like, I think everything's going to be great, but this is the one little thing in the back of my head. So we will get to the other side of this, but actually the fact that we are talking so much now about what could go wrong is indicative of the fact that most people think everything will go right. So believe it or not, this has been an hour of nothing but positivity.
right? It literally is hedging that? your bets. Yeah, it is hedging your bets. Cause like if you've got a bet on a team to win a game and then you go bet, you know, the, the other side of it, you don't go bet more. You're betting a lesser amount to try to just decrease the amount that you're guaranteed to win. So it's just hedging your bets. Here's another one that I, so I wanted to throw this in here. This is from Todd in the 410. I am 53 years old. My dad made me watch Ohio State games when I was five. My sons both cried when we lost to Michigan State in 2015. With this season in doubt three months ago, I was so despondent, I had to take walks just to get through it. Nothing about watching this team take the field will give me any pessimism. The fight song alone will salvage 2020. So Todd is, has nothing in the back of his head. He is grateful and thankful that we're here. So I think Todd is also speaking for a lot of other people when he says that. So I wanted to throw that in there because that's, that's a pretty good way to think too. But there are other things. And the run game is one of them. We've done a lot with the defense. We did a little bit of COVID. This is Wade in the 734. Hello, Doug. I finally subscribed. Long-time listener, first-time texting. I'd say the thing I'm worried about being too optimistic about is our run game, specifically our running backs. Master Teague seemed to disappear a little bit in big games last season, and I'd like to keep Justin Fields as fresh as possible and not run it nearly as many times as JT Barrett ever did for us. I hope I'm only overthinking it, though. Thanks from Wade, and Wade, thanks to you for finally pulling the trigger and being a tech subscriber. More running backs from the 631. To begin, I think Master Teague is elite. Trey Sermon, I'm sort of optimistic about. I honestly think that the running back room started from nothing, and the momentum created by the transfer of Trey Sermon and Master Teague getting cleared set expectations pretty high. However, I think all of this momentum could lead to them not performing to our expectations. More on the run game from the 614. I think I may be a little overconfident at how seamless the run game transition will be. I keep thinking that it'll be just another dominant Ohio State run game with Teague and Sermon sharing the job. We lost a great running back who made countless runs look easier than they were and saved countless plays with his ability to shift. I feel like there may be some concern over the run game now through the first couple weeks. I say this knowing I marked it down that Sermon would be one of the top backs in the country, and I still do think that's possible. So that's exactly what you're talking about, Nathan. It's hedging a markdown by having this in the back of your head couple more on the run game because this was one of the this was one of the bigger bigger things from the 570 it's our friend luke in denver i'm worried that no matter how well our offensive line blocks or how a dynamic justin fields makes the offense that in games that matter we won't be able to run the ball and the early season injuries to defensive tackle also make me spiral into a world of worry that bama or clemson will just run all over us on the other side of things so that's sort of run game worry on both side of things. This is from the 932. It's the running backs while the talent surrounding them should take off some of the lofty goals that uh, past Ohio State running backs have shown. I'm still worried about the actual players being the issue. Trey Sermon specifically. I'm unsure whether the break has been good for him um, or not. He, maybe did it help his adjustment or not help his adjustment? A couple more on the run game and then we'll get your guys' thoughts on this. This is Frank from Hudson, Ohio, the 440. The one thing I'm worried about this season is the running game. Master Teague coming off an injury and Trey Sermon is really an unknown commodity to us. But this really boils down to losing J.K. Dobbins. The Buckeyes relied upon him so much last season in the Big Ten games and Ohio State is just not going to have that this season. He ran for 174 against Clemson, 172 against Wisconsin, 211 versus Michigan, 
157 versus Penn State and 163 versus Wisconsin the first time. Do we really think we're going to get that type of production from Teague and Sermon this season? I say no. And that puts a lot more pressure on the passing game. I think fields will improve, but if we can't establish the running game against Penn State and Michigan, then Ohio State is vulnerable to an upset. I'll tell you what, those J.K. Dobbin numbers brought that home a little bit for me. Like, not just he's good, but in the biggest games of the year, they really leaned on him. From the 317, too optimistic on establishing the running game with Tegan Sermon. Fields will throw at will on the Big Ten. And I hope one of the backs becomes a clear first option before the playoffs. But Najee Harris at Alabama and Travis Etienne at Clemson look like they are on a different level than what Teague and Sermon can be. Steven, what do you think about these back-of-the-mind run game worries? I mean, I get it. I think we've all had the same worries that they're not going to be able to replace J.K. Dobbins. But, I mean, I'm not as worried as some of these texters are, honestly. And because, yes, last year they heavily leaned on J.K. Dobbins in a lot of those games in the run game to open up the passing game. But in 2018, in a lot of those games, they relied on the passing game to kind of open up the run game a little bit. Penn State game, Michigan game, Michigan game, uh, Big Ten championship game. They relied on Dwayne Hassan's arm. And I think this year is going to be similar where they're going to rely on what Justin Fields is, not just his arm, but his legs more than they are on what the running backs can give to open up everything else. I mean, we all recognized how talented J.K. Dobbins was last year. And I think we talked about it. And I think, you know, he was – rewarded as he should have been for that but I also know that there were a lot of times I watched this team last season and thought man that offensive line just got its butt kicked but J.K. Dobbins still got it done like I think that offensive line was still pretty good last year and it should be even better this year so I'm not that I mean this is one of those other things I guess I'll eat my hat in January if I'm wrong but it's like I don't know how many times they're going to need a running back to go out and win them a game this year I think um, they need to be uh, a a weapon in the offense and they need to be, uh, I think it's two guys who probably say they do have to take their games up a level from what they've been before, but that's, uh, that's why Trey Sermon's here partially. And Master T was already going to come kind of come in with that chip on his shoulder a little bit. So I I don't know. I, 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 I'm just not, I don't have that concern necessarily just because I don't think that it, I think it's great when you have a stud running back. I don't think it's the only way you can win. I think the way that Frank and Hudson framed it was really interesting, though, that J.K. really did show up against good teams when the mm-hmm. chips were down. Yeah. Like, he really showed up in that. It's like, yeah, most of the time, like, you're fine. But, like, if there is somebody, whether it's Penn State or Michigan or the Big Ten Championship game or the playoff, if there's somebody that can slow down the passing game some, whatever you do, whether it's your coverage, whether it's a pass rush, whether you just you throw deep, some looks at Justin Fields and you can slow down the passing game a little bit and it feels like, man, okay, now it's time to run. In that moment, is it going to be good enough? And, and again, I think the offensive line would tell you, yeah, but I think that's reasonable, especially in comparison to what Bama and Clemson have at running back. Listen, there's lots of times when Ohio State has better running backs than, than great teams. And, and again, you know, Mac Jones is really good. Alabama wishes they had Justin Fields. So that's what good teams do. Some good teams have a better guy here. The other good team has a better guy there. I do think that specific comparison at running back, and that's different than running game, but running back, especially if you're, if you're putting it up against Clemson and Bama, I get why people have that. My thing is going to be about the run game when we do ours though. This now I want to get into sort of some intangible kind of things. I thought this text was very interesting from the three, one, seven. This unprecedented and extended offseason seems to have given most of us, myself included, too much time to overanalyze. And I think potentially convince ourselves this team is better than it might actually be. 
it seems like the concerns we had immediately following the end of last season have significantly lessened over the past six months without ever seeing this team play a game or even have spring practice. For example, we've gone from worrying that our defensive backs are not championship caliber to now all of a sudden talking about seven banks being a potential first rounder. In general, I think we've overanalyzed and set the expectations too high for a team that lost a significant amount of experienced upperclassmen. With all that said, I still think we run the table in the Big Ten, but I don't think it will be nearly as smooth as 2019, and I expect there to be a game or two that are too close for comfort. I thought that was fascinating to look at it that way. So that is sort of like overconfidence perhaps on the pa- on the part of – a bored fan base. What about overconfidence of the Buckeyes themselves? This is Dave from Bristol and the two six seven. I don't know why I feel like this, but I can't get the nag. I can't get past the nagging feeling that the Buckeyes are going to get overly confident and have a slip up at some point this season. Maybe it's the past failures creeping in when they had incredible teams, or maybe it's the Lou Holtz coming out in me where I make everyone they play out to be better than they are. I just feel like they're too good to live to live up to the expectations. Tell me I'm wrong. And I'm having a Doug nine and three moment. So that I think is interesting. One other person went down that road from the six, one, four. The only thing I see being wrong is being overly confident to the point of cockiness. And the team will look ahead to Clemson before getting through the regular season. Does that align with any of your thoughts of what games do you foresee being our trap games this season? Nathan, do you think they're, they're so focused, right? We're doing this regret series. It's a great series guys talking about like, what they sort of wish had gone better last year. Maybe it's just us, but I do feel like some of it is from the team that they are thinking about Clemson, right? They are thinking about big picture, which is fine. They should be. Does that, does any of this lead you to any more look ahead trap game kind of stuff than you would be at, at any other, for any other good team at any other normal season? I mean, I, I no, I in Clemson obviously I think is looking past the vast majority of the ACC, and 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 when they look past them, they see them flattened behind them in the rearview mirror because they're just they're just still just steamrolling these teams because there's just such a talent differential. I don't know that I see a this kind of trapdoor thing possibly affecting this team. I just think because they so recently had it kind of pulled out from under them the way they did last year, I think that probably. If they had gone in and just gotten maybe thumped by Clemson, that would almost leave them more open to that because they'd be looking pat. But I think they see how easily it can something like so much promise can get yanked out from under you in such a um, dissatisfying way. And I think that maybe has them more focused on this kind of this is where the coach beat comes in. Right. They're like, oh, all we care about is Nebraska. That's not fully true. There's already definitely guys looking ahead to other matchups but I think collectively I think there is kind of a week-to-week focus and partially because they've gotten had to go through so much to get to this point I think that's probably also kind of reinforced like we didn't go through all this crap just to get out here and lose to Michigan State somehow what do you think Steven could any of this creep in could any I mean like the Clemson thing's been hanging out there so long I mean it's been 10 months now since they lost to Clemson, and that's like the thing in their head. We all know what the deal is. Is it just us? Is it just fans and media who maybe are thinking that way, or could any of it creep into them? I think this team needs to get on the field as quickly as possible, and I think Ryan Day knows that. I understand why you put the score of the Clemson game up in your weight room, and that's a great motivating factor, but a lot has to go right for you to play Clemson again, and I think 
the more they've had to think about it and we're asking them questions about it. We're doing a series about it. If you ask these parents about it, they'll give you the real answers of how these players actually feel about it and just come out right with it. Yes, it's Clemson. But at some point, if you get stuck into that, you know, you do start to overlook some things. And I'm not saying anybody's going to upset them this year. I don't think anybody's going to upset them this year. But at some point, they have to lock back in. And maybe they do apply the same, you know, approach that Clemson has, where it's, we know what the real focus is, it's down the road. But when we play it, whoever the Miami level team is, where this is a ranked team who everybody thinks is, you know, on the rise, which would be Penn State, because that's the early game for Ohio State, we lock into that opponent. When Clemson plays Notre Dame, they're going to lock into that opponent. When Ohio State plays plays Michigan or Michigan State, they're going to lock into those opponents. So, yeah, on a week-to-week when they're in the woody and practicing and getting ready, they're going to lock into those opponents. But when they're sitting at home, and especially over the last month, when they've been sitting at home on a Saturday watching football, I guarantee you, yeah, they've been tuned into everything Clemson is doing. I hadn't thought about this before, but now I actually think it could be a thing. Uh, uh, I wonder. I wonder. Um, I'll be makes me extra curious to see how they come out against Nebraska. It's almost like one of those things. I wonder if they beat Nebraska 70 to three and I win my bet with Nathan. Does it set them up for overconfidence at Penn state? I, I don't know. I don't really, I'm going to add this. This is way in the back of my head, but it wasn't in my head at all. But somehow just that weird loss where they felt like they were the better team than this gigantic off season. And they feel like, do they feel like they're a team of destiny that they fought to get this season back and they're going to avenge everything. And all of a sudden they lose to Indiana. I think maybe that's, that's maybe a 20% greater possibility than in a normal year, even though we've seen them lose games like that before. I mean, that's what we talked about last year that it had happened in 17 and 18. I was not there at all, but that has now been placed in the back of my head. It feels like I just want to be, I want to pay more attention to that and to see if it feels like there's anything there or not. I think it's a very interesting point. Or does it make you want to match everything Clemson does week to week? No, I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, it's whatever. It's like, I mean, if they kick everybody's butt, if they, if they go undefeated and they win every game 70 to three, then it's was, it motivated them to match Clemson. If they have a bad week and then it's like, then they were looking ahead. I mean, this is everything. It's like you, you, you backward look it, but as I've said before, at times I have felt Ohio state teams do this. Not very often, very, 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 very seldom. But I think you can feel a little bit when it happens. And like Ryan Day's in year two, like Ryan Day did a great job of like beating the underdog drum last year and getting these guys motivated. And, you know, like, again, I've told you, like, I, you know, Ryan Day knew I picked him to go nine and three. And Ryan Day wasn't mad at me about that. You know, it's like, hey, don't drop expectations on us. Everybody expects these. Everybody's putting these guys in the playoff already. That's a little bit of a different motivational thing for Ryan Day to, to handle. Because he was able to sort of harness the underdog thing. There's no underdog this year. It's going to be overdog. Make sure you, you got to tap down the overdog a little bit. So um, intriguing. I don't think it's going to trip him up, but it's in the back of my head. Here's another one. This is from the 614. I expect a rematch with Clemson, but this time in the national championship game. I expect the Buckeyes to be well-prepared and embarrass them, similar to the 31 nothing beatdown that Urban got a few years back. But I'm afraid I might be wrong. While I know Ohio State has the talent to play with Clemson any day, I'm kind of worried that Clemson is a mental hurdle that this team cannot get over. So that's a mental part of the Clemson thing. Now here's an on-field part of the Clemson thing from the 816. My biggest concern is that this may well be one of the best teams in Ohio State history, and it most certainly has the best quarterback in school history, and it still might not be enough to win a championship. 
even if this team is great, it seems so is Clemson and so is Bama. And I'm guessing with all three undefeated, Ohio State would get the three seed. That means having to go through both. We can show up to each game bringing our best, and it still may not be enough because they will be bringing their best too. On the flip side, though, winning it while having to go through both would make it so much sweeter. Nathan, I think I want to drill down on this specifically. I still think I am in the camp of I think they don't have to be as good as last year's team, and I don't know that they are as good as last year's Ohio State team because Clemson was still good last year. I think Clemson might be better than they were last year. But I just think LSU was a monster. And I don't know that anybody is going to be as good as LSU was last year. So, Nathan, how would you characterize the back of the head fear of like, I I think Ohio State's going to be great, but now I'm worried it's not going to be good enough because of how good Clemson and Bama are? Um, There's always going to be great teams. Like, there just are. Like, that's why the playoff is a better format for deciding a national champion than when it was just a poll and whoever were the top two teams were, maybe they didn't even play each other. Um, and even the BCS where you only had the two teams that were like, this is a better system and you're always going to have to go through somebody great and maybe multiple teams that are great to win a national championship. That's what makes it worth. That's what makes a national championship so valuable. It's not something that's given to you anymore. It's something you have to go earn and you're going to have to earn it for nine weeks before you even get a chance to, to play for the national championship. Um, I, I, I do think this is a year where the Big Ten doesn't really scare me that much. I mean, Penn State, we haven't talked about it, but, you know, losing Journey Brown, I think that makes them um, uh, less of a threat in that second game of the year, especially because I thought that's where they might be, Ohio State might be the most vulnerable is, is being able to stop the run in a game like that. Um, there may be only like one other game on the schedule that really bothers me that much in the Big Ten as far as Ohio State. I think they're going to have a, a, a relatively easy time of it. So, I, you're always gonna have to beat somebody great. That's you, I don't think there's ever going to be a season where you're going to be, you know, I know sometimes we struggle to find that fourth team for the playoff. It's not that often where there's just one team that's an unbelievable behemoth. And then they're just throwing three um, fillers in to fill out the final four. It, it's there's usually multiple great teams that you have to go through. That's just how it is. Steven, what do you think? And Steven, do you think there's anything to the Clemson mental hurdle part of it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's going to be there until they beat them. I mean, yeah, but there is something to it. And that's why it's kind of stuck in their head a little bit. I think that plays into also why last year was such was what it was. I mean, not only one because of the way the game ended, but also who it, who it ended against. I mean, you couldn't say you were on the same page as Alabama until you beat Alabama. And then everything that happened after is what happened. Out. But in that moment, you got over that mental hurdle against the SEC and then it gets the top notch of the SEC. And now Clemson is that. So, yeah, that mental hurdle is still there until you can get past it. So I'll say two things on this. One is I don't think Clemson's a mental hurdle. I think the SEC thing was a mental hurdle because it's all the Big Ten herd forever. You're not the SEC. You're not the SEC. Yes, they're 0-4 against Clemson, but it's like the Woody game, which is famous, but really has no connection to these guys. Then the Orange Bowl, which was like a nice game after the 2013 season, but they had thought they were going to the national championship game, and Clemson wasn't Clemson yet, and Braxton Miller got his arm ripped off and played through it. So like they lost that game, but it was like a good competitive game. Mike Williams is a monster. Like, you know, no, Mike Williams is 16. Sammy Watkins tore him apart that game. But like, I don't really think that was like, that was like pre before Clemson was Clemson. That doesn't count. 2016, Ohio State never should have been there. They were not as good as Clemson. And anybody who thought they were got proven drastically wrong. That Ohio State team in 2016 couldn't compete. And then last year, they were just as good as Clemson and some wacky stuff happened. But like, I don't think they lost the Clemson game because of a mental hurdle, 
You know, it's like, oh, they didn't punch it in, or they, 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 the call went against them, or whatever. Olave, right? But I, I don't think any of the Clemson stuff is mental. So I don't think it's a mental hurdle. But I also will say this to Nathan's point. I think the path to the title will be possibly like really significantly more difficult than when they actually won it. Because to your point, Nathan, there's no easy road and all that stuff. As I was, we said before, and as we talked to the retalkables, the 2014 semifinal against Bama, that was not a great Bama team. Not a great quarterback. Good defense. They didn't get the ball to Derrick Henry enough. That was not the best of Bama. And then when they got to the national championship game, it was Oregon. It was like Oregon and Marcus Mariota, but Mark, Oregon doesn't have as much talent as Ohio State. So like a mediocre for Bama team and Oregon, I think is like several steps easier than Bama Clemson this year or Clemson LSU last year. So yes, Nathan, I agree. There's no easy national title, but I do think there are levels. And I think this just might be like significantly harder than the last time they got one. And maybe that would be in the back of someone's head. I mean, look, look at, I mean, go ask LSU fans. I mean, last year, just this incredible season, like more than you could ever have like dreamed of having in some ways. And they still had a really tough game against Alabama in the regular season. And then once it got to the playoff, yeah, they got the easy game against Oklahoma, but waiting for them in the championship game was going to be Clemson or Ohio state. But I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll push it back a little bit on this. Wasn't Tua, Tua was hurt earlier in the year and Tua wasn't exactly Tua for the Bama right. LSU yeah. game. That's what I'm still saying. Wait, 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 wait. That wasn't as tough. That Bama game wasn't as tough as it could have been. Right. Do you guys agree with that? I thought Tua was still healthy for that game. No, he was hurt. He, I think that was like his first or second game back. I, well, yeah, but he okay. did play. Yeah, he played. Yeah, he game. did play, but he wasn't Heisman candidate level to it. Yes, to that to your point, it takes a little bit of luck to win a national championship. Yes. So, so LSU's path. So they they you had to get over the Bama hurdle, but Bama was a little wounded when they got him, and and Bama still played him right to the wire. Then they get LSU. No, they don't. They get Oklahoma. Oklahoma stinks. Right. Was, they get a four saying, like, seed in the playoff, but they get a they get a cakewalk in one of their playoff games. There are years where that wouldn't always be the case, right? You get a cakewalk. And then who was better last year, Ohio State or Clemson? Who was a better team? Ohio State was. Ohio they didn't State. have to but play I'm still saying, But I'm still saying they they knew that their a team of that caliber was going to be waiting. They, Ohio they State wasn't the, so much – yeah, but Ohio State wasn't so much better than Clemson that that was – But they, I don't those think – were. I, I still think Ohio State was better, but it's not like there's a huge separation there. If, no, but if, Clemson if went out here is that – if your point here, Doug, is the fact that Ohio State might have a much tougher path if they win a national championship this year, then yes, you're 100% correct in that. Which is my, yeah, but that that's, is my point. That I, but but Ohio not, State, go ahead. That wasn't the point yeah. I was trying to make. I was just trying to say in general that even when you have a team as great as LSU's was last year, you could still have a really tough regular season game as they did against Alabama that almost cost you. You can still have a team like Clemson or Ohio State waiting for you in the national championship but game. Like it, but that's but that's equivocating. I mean, that's not because the point is should Ohio this Ohio State fan is saying, I think Ohio State's going to be awesome, but I'm worried that Clemson and Bama are awesomer. I don't know that LSU. So LSU, if you were an LSU fan that had the same thing in the back of your head last year, I think this LSU team might be awesome, but I'm worried other teams are awesomer. Well, you played Bama when Tua wasn't 100%. That helped. Oklahoma stinks and you got them in the playoff. And then actually that last year's Clemson team was not peak Clemson. I don't think that was peak Clemson. They were good. They were very good, but it wasn't peak Clemson and Clemson's been the other great team in this era. And also Ohio state probably had a little more talent across the board and was better and lost. 
So LSU three different times in three big games did not really play a team that was maxing out on how good it could be. Ohio State, when it went through the playoff, it had Blake Sims as Alabama's quarterback, and then it was Marcus Mariota who was dragging an otherwise average Oregon team. If Bama and Clemson are maxed out, Bama's got receivers galore. They have an NFL running back. They have a quarterback who's playing really well. They got six NFL guys on defense. Trevor Lawrence is playing as well as any quarterback in the last 20 years in college. They have a, a guy who would be a top 10 NFL running back if he had gone pro right now. And they're better than last year's Clemson team. I'm just saying to have that in the back of your head, I think that's that's reasonable. Yes, it's always hard. I think this might be more difficult than many recent paths. It sounds uh, that texter just sounds like they're looking for in a world where it takes a little bit of luck to win a championship. Where is Ohio State's luck going to come? What what and, luck? I'm not talking about luck. I'm talking about the other teams being more t- super awesome, talented. Luck is not uh, luck is probably not the right word, but the, the idea of the fact that you didn't get the best of Bama, the idea that Ohio State didn't have the best of Bama team that when they won the national championship in 2014, the idea that LSU had to play Oklahoma instead of having to go through Ohio State and Clemson to win a national championship. That's where that comes into, into play. Ohio State doesn't have that right now. And it, it sounds like this fan is trying to find out where that might be, where but that I'm might not- be. I'm not calling it luck. I'm calling how good your competition is. I think that okay, fine. Luck is probably not the right word, but for the sake of the, maybe not the right phrase, but that's basically what they're saying. No, they're not. They're saying how good is the competition? Stop saying luck. Stop saying luck is not the right word, and then saying luck again. He's saying I'm worried that the competition is awesome, and I'm saying I think you might be right. But then my point was that it's always right. The competition is always no, but, awesome. And my point is saying that every championship is hard. Sounds like coach speak to me. You're not saying that sometimes teams are better. That like when you rank the great Bama team, sometimes Bama's better one year than it is another year, even though it's a championship team. Or that well, now we're getting into it. Clemson. Right, but you're getting into a tough situation because like okay, so last year with LSU, they ended. Up, they even had to play the number five team in the playoff rankings in the SEC championship game and crushed them so how much of that is how much of that was an easy path or how much of that was lsu just being that much better i feel like the path is always tough sometimes it's just that teams are that much better jake Fromm was the quarterback of the path last year i mean it's like well, he's jake Fromm than... almost won a national championship as a freshman yeah. so yeah but then he started to blow he was stetson barnett can we say third. blow i don't know. <laughs> he started to not be full circle so, closer. <laughs> he started just, off closer to Tua and ended closer to Stetson Barnett. Things could change, right? Get back to me when Trevor Lawrence gets hurt. And then that's luck, right? So, yes, like Tua being hurt is luck. A team right now looking like there are two potentially awesome teams in your path, that's not luck. That's kind of like the competition might be higher than it is some years, but of course you have to beat good teams to win a national championship. A couple other, we're kind of getting down to some like kind of random things here. There's one thing at the end that I'm going to say that I kind of don't even really want to talk about, but this is an interesting one. I, 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 this was one that I had not thought of from the 407. Bite your tongue for invoking memories of nine and three Earl, although he was a great man. I like that. It is hard when I reference nine and three. Am I talking about me or am I talking about Earl Bruce? I'm worried that the players won't play as well without the ambience of the fans, the band, and the college football experience. Dan Mullen at Florida has used that excuse down here in Florida. I think this person's from Florida, but maybe there's some merit to it. However, I do think that Ryan Day has drilled into them that they are very fortunate to play this year. So I'm hoping that will 
be something they can overcome by not having the full experience. Sorry for rambling from the 407. You weren't rambling. I've always said I don't think the home field advantage at Ohio State is as great as in some places. Some of that relates to like the size of the stadium and that kind of thing. I do think the ambiance at Ohio Stadium is about as good as it gets. And I don't know exactly how that influences the players, but I do think if you're looking for a secret reason why Ohio State has lost some games at Purdue over the years, I think some component of that is because nobody goes to games at Purdue and the stadium's smaller and it's not as loud and you don't get as jacked up for it. So, you know, it does it affect the home team more or the road team more. I think Ohio State has been really good about going into road atmospheres that are nuts and somehow using that home atmosphere at Penn State to motivate the Buckeyes that they're like going into the lion's den and they like that. I actually, now that a texter said this, Stephen, think it's possible that it's such a great atmosphere at Ohio State that they will miss the atmosphere more than Rutgers or Maryland or Purdue or Minnesota will miss it. And could that have some small effect on how they play? I think it'll be weird for the first quarter and then they get over it. Honestly, I think that's more of a thing for the underdog who's hosting the Ohio state monster, because I mean, part of the Purdue, yes, nobody goes to Purdue games. And then all of a sudden Ohio state comes to town, everybody comes to the Purdue game, but also the kid who was sick that played into it as well. That's another motivating factor. I, I, the fan thing is more of a thing when you're the underdog. I think for a team like Ohio State, who's usually going to be the who's going to be the more talented team in every game it plays in the regular season, it's weird in the first quarter because it's something you've never seen before, and then you get over it and you're playing football. More fans go to Purdue games when they play Ohio State than go to a normal Purdue game because they all make the four-hour drive across uh, one yeah. state and come to the game. Like, I've seen it. It happens. And the reason that the crowd the crowd was a factor in that game, I thought, that because the way that game started to turn, the crowd became a factor. Night game, all this other stuff. So I think I agree with Steven that I think it's going to be more – I think it makes them almost less vulnerable to these situations on the road because there's not going to be a crowd getting behind the other team and becoming a factor in the game. What about at home? Is empty Ohio Stadium, does all of a sudden, again, I don't think the home field advantage has been great, but there have been times over the years when like Ohio State will come out for a noon kickoff, like before everybody's there. It's like a noon kickoff against a lesser opponent. And there's kind of like a kind of atmosphere and they come out and they start slow. And the coach will come in and say, hey, I think we started slow because like we kind of weren't into it right away. And now to me, that's kind of what the atmosphere is going to be like all the time. You walk into an empty stadium and it's like, are you juiced up? You're normally juiced up because it's awesome at Ohio Stadium. Like any effect for home games, Nathan? No, I I don't know. I don't really think so. And I even think that sometimes, you know, road teams, any team that comes into Ohio Stadium is coming in to pull the upset. Like they're, every team's coming in as an underdog. And I think sometimes those road environments as an athlete, I think you get up for that. I think you get up for the opportunity to go in and play in front of a hundred thousand fans and kind of stick it to them. So I, I don't you know. You just that said that, that when Ohio state goes on the road, they won't have to deal with the home crowd. So you just made it. Sound I'm, t- like well, I'm talking about stadium. when you made it sound like an empty stadium is a good thing for Ohio state both ways. But when again, I'm talking about in the second in the in the, on the road scenarios, I'm talking about those games where it starts to get away from them. it starts to go in the way of the home team. And then the crowd becomes a factor. I'm not saying it's a factor from the beginning of the game. So I think it's it, it's the it's it is different for when you're the team that's the underdog and going into a place than when you're the favorite and going into a place. I think that Ohio State plays in front of gigantic crowds all the time. No Ohio State player is, has ever played in front of like an absolutely dead stadium. 
because when they're at home, it's the home crowd and it's a hundred thousand people. And when they're on the road, it's like the biggest game of the year for the road team and people show up to see the Buckeyes or their own fans show up. Other big 10 teams are used to playing in front of dead crowds all the time. Nathan, what's the crowd like at Purdue, Illinois? Yeah. So now everything's going to be, yeah. And everybody in the big 10 is going to have more experience with dead crowds than Ohio state does. Does that mean they're going to lose a game? No, but I'm adding it to the back of my head because of this texture. I mean, it's a fact that they have less experience playing in dead atmospheres, but does it matter? But I also think it's one of those things. Yeah. I, I, I agree with Steven. I think that it's just an adjustment that gets made over the course of the season, assuming that they keep this no fans policy throughout the season. At some point you're just playing your sixth game where there's been no, where there's no fans there. And it's just, that's become the new normal. True. Uh, this is about the Big Ten thing. Nathan, you kind of touched on this a little bit before, maybe, from the 419. I think I'm too optimistic about winning every conference game. Going undefeated is very hard to do, and I worry about uh, if, a path, if a path to the playoff would even exist with the loss. So I do think as it's like one of those, as much as last year, we fans, our texters last year, Nathan, asked us a lot about Iowa and Purdue in 17 and 18. Could that be coming? Could that be coming? They got through last year with ease through the Big Ten schedule, and now people aren't asking about that, it feels like. And it feels like we, the three of us certainly are, are just like assuming the Big Ten is fine. They're getting through the Big Ten season undefeated. I've said I would be shocked. I think all three of us would be shocked if they lose a Big Ten game. But is it worth reminding yourself in the back of your head that winning every game is hard? Sure. But I also think there's some other factors here, too. Like last year, we thought Nebraska was going to be better than they were. Ohio State had to go on the road at Nebraska. And so that's that really fit into that whole Big Ten narrative, right? You're going on the road. You're playing against a team that might have some sneaky NFL talent. And then Ohio Ohio State went in and just blew them out of the blew them out of the corn. And this year, there really isn't that Big Ten road game. I think that Big Ten West road game that bothers people. I mean, unless you think Illinois is a whole lot better than I think they are. We're going to get to this in, in my answer of my my pessimism optimism thing but um I, I think part of this is just this schedule in particular i think does not have the kind of teams that people are worried about and i think it's almost gotten to the point where people have talked up indiana a little bit because they're looking for that team more than how good they think indiana really is and so because it's, of everything penn state has lost i think at this point it's almost we need to see what michigan looks like to see if that can that all be a thing because Penn State at this point has lost its best defensive player and best offensive player. Yeah, correct. Which is hard. Imagine if the same had happened to Ohio State. That is a that is a. Well, I, I think even thing. at Ohio State, you could ask Ohio State, like, what if you lost? What if it wasn't even your best? Just the similar positions. Like, if you lost Pete Werner right now and you lost Matthew Teague or Trey Sermon yeah. right now, like, how much would that hurt Ohio State? It would hurt. They would feel it. I don't think it would kill their season, but they would feel it. And Penn Just those positional. Thing, I know what you're saying. And Penn State's thing are like 10 times that. No offense exactly. to Warner or Master T. Yeah, Penn State's would be like if Ohio State lost Justin Fields and Sean Wade. But yes, I, talent-wise, yes. Not quite positionally, but I agree with that, yeah. Stephen. Yeah. Here, a couple receiver ones. Stephen, I want to start with you on this. From the 4-4-0, their fear is the receiver group won't live up to expectations. I don't think anyone is expecting the Teague-Sermon combo to be as dominant as Dobbins, which will inherently put more pressure on the passing game. KJ Hill, Ben Victor, and and Austin Mack combined for 118 receptions last year, and it seems like a tall order to expect that Garrett Wilson is going to make a jump this year and not have a sophomore slump, and that the rest of this young receiver room can make up for the loss of three senior receivers. I have not heard anyone express that really before. Any back-of-the-head fears of Steven's eyes are the size of saucers. Someone fearing a Garrett Wilson sophomore slump 
Would you like me to give you this person's phone number, Stephen, so you could call them personally? <laughs> just so we, yeah, just so we could chat. So you're not worried about even back of the head Garrett Wilson sophomore slump or worried about the receivers? I am not worried about Garrett Wilson. Okay, I, that's one thing I am not worried about. I'm sure he's played slot at some point in his life before. No, he hasn't done it at the college level, but I'm pretty sure he's done it before. And I would love to talk to him about the idea that maybe they even had the conversation with him in the recruiting process that this was a possibility that he would go from outside to slot as a sophomore because of what the, the roster in the room looked like. I'm tempered with the freshman because I think we've hyped him up. Um, we've seen them in person once since you know, the world shut down and they looked fine. But as Brian Day has said, and as Brian Hartley said, they just started tackling. And it's a different conversation when you're catching a ball and somebody can actually knock the wind out of you instead of just touching you. And so I am a little tempered there because we haven't seen them since they started tackling. So I am a little tempered there. And what happens when they start rotating and Chris Olave isn't out there and Jamison Williams, who also is pretty much new to meaningful snaps, but he's not out there as well. And what happens when it's D Scott and Julian Fleming or if Jackson Smith is in the rotation of that slot? I am a little worried there because they've never been hit when they had to catch a ball in a college football game. And at least the other guys have. Paul and Indy in the 317. He's too pessimistic on Kerry Combs breaking his short sleeves in cold weather streak with games in December. <laughs> So is this an actual factual thing for sure? And it feels like that we need to ask Kerry Combs about it. He, he really always wears short sleeves to games no matter what. And now he's going to be playing two weeks later outdoors. So he's going to have to tough it out. That's what we're understanding from this question, right? So I'm getting ready to Google image Kerry Combs and see if I see a photo of him in a long sleeve shirt. And I'm scrolling for a while. I don't see one. All right. He's got a long sleeve shirt on with a Tennessee, but he's got his shoulder. He's got him rolled up. Okay. Oh yeah. Cause the NFL plays longer. That's, that's good. That's so Steven, let's get on that. That's just, you look for Kerry Combs pictures from two years in Tennessee and see what his cool. uh, attire was. And we can ask Kerry Combs about sleeves. Hey Kerry, I know you have a big game coming up against Penn state, but are you going to wear long sleeves in December? And practice doesn't count. We're talking about games. This is two more things we want to get to that we'll take a quick break and then we'll get to the other side very quickly from the 262. I'm not saying this is how I feel things will happen, but it has been in the back of my mind for a while. What if Ryan Day's career path at Ohio State turns out to be more like Mark Helfrich at Oregon? Takes over for Urban Meyer, same as Chip Kelly, with the cupboard stacked and a Heisman quarterback. Could he fall completely flat on his face once Justin Fields leaves? This is not an unreasonable comparison. When Ohio State played Oregon in the national championship game, they were not playing Chip Kelly. They were playing the guy who replaced him to even have this in the back of your head, Nathan. Any any reason to have it in the back of your head at all? I'm No. Again, it just the way that this program acquires talent, the way this program develops talent, that, that's proven. I mean, it's happening. It's it's It was happening before you got here, and it's still happening now. I, I really don't – I think that the talent level will always be – or is at least I shouldn't say always will be, but it is a place right now where this team is the, the expectation should be national championship contention. I think the reason that it probably wouldn't be in the back of your head is because what he's showing in recruiting Steven, right? That that's, mm-hmm. that felt like at Oregon, it was a little more specific. Yes. They had the Nike thing and Phil Knight. Um, reminds me, I had to call James Crepia so we could fight about it for two hours, but I do think 
Brian Day is showing that he, that, that, that he can continue the Urban Meyer recruiting level or expand on it more than what happened at Oregon after Chip Kelly, which is why I think that would push that out of the back of people's heads. Yeah, recruiting, uh, we kind of had the same conversation when we were talking about Texas a couple of weeks ago. The fact, recruiting kind of softens the blow a little bit of whatever drop-off there might be when you lose a legend or a guy who is really good at a program. And right now, he, that's the key. as long as he keeps that up, he can always hire good, make good hires that develop that recruiting, but you got to get the talent in here right now. He's doing that. I'll tell you, when he got hired, that was at the front of my head. It wasn't at the back of my head. So, like, it's been getting yeah. pushed further and further and further back as Ryan Day seems to do thing after thing after thing after thing very, very well. So I think it's maybe it's not 100% out of the back of my head, but, I mean, that's, that's, it was absolutely reasonable to think of that um, when he got hired. Last thing on this topic, and it's Justin Fields related. We got through all of them. We got through all 44. From the 409, I'm concerned about turnovers. Justin Fields was so good about taking care of the ball, as was JK. I'm concerned that Justin Fields may have a tipped ball or the running backs may have a few fumbles at the wrong time that will cost us a close game. I get that because people don't like to admit it, um, but turnovers are often random. And as much as you can take care of the ball, as actually as much as you can you know, play some defenses to try to get picks or get strip sacks or whatever. A lot of it still is random and random things can hurt a great team. Sometimes last thing on Justin Fields. I don't even want to say it out loud from the three, three Oh, Justin Fields gets hurt ending this potential championship season. Listen, I, I don't know. It's not fun to think about, but if that's at the back of your head, I mean, that's, you know, he's so important, right? I mean, Clemson fans have the same thing about Trevor Lawrence. And those might be the only two guys in the country that you'd have that thought process about. But the reason you think that is because they're so good. So it's not really worth discussing very much, but this one is worth discussing. It's the last one on this side from the four, four, three. I don't think I'm wrong about this because I have a great deal of confidence in Justin Fields in the passing game, but what if it doesn't live up to our ridiculous expectations? All offseason, Buckeye fans, myself included, have been dreaming about this passing game with the experience already on the roster and the plethora of young talent coming in. But what if they just can't seem to click? Then the conversation turns from there are questions in the secondary, but we have Justin Fields, to we have questions in the secondary and the passing game is not what we thought it would be. Just even specifically, Stephen, I mean, we're talking about 50 points a game. We're talking about four or five touchdown passes a game. I mean, that's not crazy to me that it's not that Justin Fields isn't good. It's that we are nuts with our expectations and we're setting ourselves up for disappointment here on the podcast and fans out in the fan base. Yeah, I think Justin Fields was really good last year. And um, I think we all think he can surpass that, which is, I mean, a pretty awesome feat if he does that. But that was actually mine, Justin Fields. And am, am I getting too out of control with my expectations for him. And I think watching Trevor Lawrence every week isn't helping because that's the guy he's being compared to. And Trevor Lawrence is playing out of his mind right now. And so with every week that he does that, we're thinking, oh man, I think just wait till Justin Fields gets on the field because he's going to do something similar to that. He's going to do something similar to that. And Trevor, Trevor keeps doing this. And that's what Justin Fields has to keep up with, which is part of the burden of being so connected to one guy like that is you, you're always paired with what he is. And we're going to be comparing his stats to Trevor's when it comes to Heisman talks and all that stuff. And so, yeah, I, I, I think you have to temper it a little bit that obviously you think he's going to be Heisman level, but I think we're, we've all kind of reached the point here over the last 10 months that we think he's going to be historic. Which... We're, co we're comparing him to a guy who is not the best quarterback this season, but people think is yeah. the best 
quarterback of the last two decades in college football. And we're predicting that he's going to like beat that guy out for the Heisman and win a national championship over that guy's team. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's Trevor Lawrence. It's Trevor Lawrence. And And you're combining it with the fact that he threw one interception up until the last seven minutes of the regular season. Well, if he didn't throw any interceptions because he was playing lousy defenses, part of it. Yeah, I know, but it's just like, but that's part of it. Yeah, and when you combine that with what we're trying to compare him with, it's, I mean, look, if he, if say he throws two touchdown passes and 225 yards and Ohio State wins 41 to three on Saturday, we're going to all go, it was great, but it wasn't Trevor Lawrence. We're going to be comparing to Trevor Lawrence and thinking he didn't have a good game. Nathan, do you think that could happen? That yes. we, we wind up yes. trapped in a cycle of like com- having comparing Justin Fields all year to a guy who is a once in a generation talent and it feeling like Justin Fields is somehow coming up short. A little bit, yeah. But I also think that we we may just be thinking about this team a little bit wrong. I still think this team is going to run the ball a lot. I know they don't have J.K. Dobbins, but they still get this amazing offensive line. They think these two guys are pretty capable backs. I still think that's going to be a big part of this offense. I don't think it's going to be uh, arena league out there. So that's the other thing that I would remember that it's the passing numbers with Justin Fields. He had a great season last year, but he didn't have, uh, it was more about the efficiency. I think I called it explosive efficiency. It was, it, you didn't have to put up with the, the interceptions and stuff that you maybe put up with other quarterbacks, but you also didn't get the voluminous yards. I mean, his career, his career high for passing yards is the Fiesta bowl, 320 yards, a game that he told me last week was not a good game for him. So, I mean, I don't this idea that he's going to come out and just start chucking for four or 500 yards a week or something like that is something people really need to, to, to not get wrapped up. That's just not going to happen. How many times a game do you think he's going to throw the ball? I think we already did this right in the mid. Yeah, I think you, because I mean, Trevor's not throwing it up. He's throwing it 29 times a game. He's not throwing it 40 times a game. And he's just, he's just really efficient with it. Well, they right. took him out at halftime at Georgia tech. Right. I mean, that's yeah, the thing like, he's, it, he's in a similar situation. Justin was last year where they're getting it all out the way in the first half. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be, there's like the eye test, how well are they playing? How are they leading their team? And then there's the stats and the stats are going to be a lot about the level of competition. How much Mm -hmm. did they blow people out that day? When did their coaches take them out? But then there's also going to be like, is Justin Fields playing as well as Trevor Lawrence, which I think we will be trying to evaluate all year. Quick break back with the other side. We have, this is 44 on this side. There's eight on the other side, the people who are pessimistic, but actually are wondering, Hey, maybe I should be more optimistic. So It's going to feel happier, even though it's actually coming from people who are actually expecting worse. It's very confusing. On Buckeye Talk. All right, back to wrap this up. So, Stephen, yours was that. You kind of explained yours. Yours was that maybe the back of your head thing, the thing you might be wrong about is that you are expecting like a world beater season from Justin Fields. And maybe it's just that he's really good, but not off the charts. Yeah, I think, yeah. Nathan, have we touched on yours at all yet, or should we save it, or you want to do yours? I can go ahead and it, it was, we sort of touched on it when we were talking about just the Big Ten and the, the road to the playoff. But like, I'm the one who has been maybe the most uh, critical of this schedule, the, and 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 talking about how I think this schedule is pretty much a cakewalk. I mean, the, the toughest game you get is now starting to look. I might be the Michigan game, which is a home game. You you know you don't have you know Penn State looked like it was going to be a tough game, but you don't have any of the home field advantage for them. And now they don't have their best player on each side of the ball. Um, Indiana, I think, man, I think I'm probably 
still thinking too much about them last year, but they were wildly overrated last year. They were not a top 25 caliber real program last year. They beat nobody. They had eight wins of nothing. They were celebrated for going on the road and beating Nebraska and stuff like that. I've called Nebraska a tier six team. So I'm the one who, you know, has talked about how, how this schedule is so easy. And so that's probably the thing that I, because I've gone so far into that side that it's a, it's a schedule like what Clemson would often have in many years where they get to just walk to the playoff that's probably the thing that I could end up being the most wrong about that. I'm wrong about the fact that, that Penn state could still maybe give them a game. I'm wrong about the fact that Indiana may be better than I'm giving them credit for that. Michael Penix and some of the other things they're doing would, will will make a bridge enough of that differential that they had last year, that even a team like Nebraska, which it's looked so lost last year in that game could give them more of a game this year that maybe I'm just, I'm too wrong about the big 10 and how easy it's going to be for Ohio state to just walk to the playoff. That's a good one. And, and again, we don't get paid to cover every other team in the conference. So sometimes, and again, I do think, but also I think sometimes the people who cover a team, sometimes you're wrong about your team because you, you know so much about them that you don't realize the context, right? So I do think trying to figure out, sometimes you just are thinking you have a read about this on the Big Ten and it turns out it's not quite right. I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, so a lot of these, again, we only have eight, are just the flip of what we did before. So some people are saying, for instance, they're assuming Kerry Combs is going to be good, but now in the back of their head, they're maybe a little bit worried because he's never been a defensive coordinator before. From the 419, I may be too pessimistic about Combs as a first-year defensive coordinator, hopefully. So this person is actually legitimately worried about that and thinking maybe I shouldn't be worried about it. So it's the opposite side of it. Same thing with the defense from the 937. I might be wrong about the defense. I truly think that it'll be closer to the 2019 defense than the 18 defense. I keep seeing and hearing the take that you don't lose guys like young Okuda, Arnett and Harrison and maintain the same level of play. My counter argument is that those guys all played on the 2018 defense that stunk too. Maybe I have this on the wrong side, but like there it's like, okay, that, that is interesting. Hey, if it's so hard to replace these guys, well, listen, a lot of those guys were part of a bad defense and they were part of a great defense. Maybe these guys can be part of a great defense. It is in general, the defense can be very confusing to wrap your head around in part because the last two years have been diametrically opposite at Ohio state 18. The defense was a huge problem. 19. It was awesome. So now you're trying to get a handle on what this one will be. And it can be hard. It can be hard. This person says from the seven, three, four, the pessimism around the defense in general is unwarranted given what college football is today. The offense will overcompensate for the defense, not being as good as they were last season. Additionally, the defensive tackle concerns are too high. They'll be fine if they're not six deep. LSU's defense wasn't great either. I look at this defense like a SWOT analysis. What's that mean? Is that a swear word? S-W-O-T? A SWOT analysis where strengths and weaknesses are internal and opportunities and threats are external. The strengths, weaknesses, and opportunities are all fine. The only threat wears orange, specifically 9 and 16. 9 and 16, is that ATN and Lawrence, Stephen? Yeah. It's Nathan? Yeah. I don't know people's numbers. So that's people who are thinking that like the defense is going to be okay. Don't freak out. Is that how people are referring to them from now on? <laughs> it's just nine, nine and 16. 16. Yeah. They don't deserve yeah. names. That person might be a coach. Everybody's always like, nobody ever knows. They just know the number from the film. That's fair. From the two, six, nine, we've spent so much time talking about the things we question on defense and on offense, including running back. But I think we're not talking enough about how good this offensive line will be. I think they are primed to dominate this year and cover up some mistakes. The ability to sustain long drives and score while keeping an offense like Clemson or Bama on the sideline could be the path to a natty. 
So not talking enough about the offensive line. This person kind of went back and forth a little bit. This is a combination of optimism and pessimism. I think this might be the best offensive coaching staff, best offensive line, best receiver room, and best quarterback room of all time at Ohio State. This might be the worst running back room since at least 2001. Is that too far? Didn't Ryan Day said this week, like he loves the running back depth, right? Which is the kind of thing that coaches always say when the top end's not so good. Right. I mean, Ohio State's used to having a stud back. So if they don't have a true stud back, then you're around that area. You're saying the running back room this year with Trey Sermon and Master Teague is better than last year when it was J.K. Dobbins and Master Teague? And Chambers is a year older. This person's saying that they they're they're spinning this both ways. They think everything about the offense is as good as ever, but the running back room is the worst in 20 years. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Sorry. So, and it's like, well, it's like one of those things. Well, you go back that far. It's like, well, they went from like Maurice Claret to, you know, I don't know if they were great. Like in Oh, I mean, Antonio Pittman was okay. Like, and Pittman, but I don't know, but like Antonio Pittman was okay. Antonio Pittman was like the lead, a 1200 yard lead back on the yeah. 2005 and 2006 team. It's like if master Teague's Antonio Pittman, if yeah. either master Teague or Trey Sermon is Antonio Pittman, they are in great shape. It's and just you, on that list of people we're naming. He's no, not, I know, but but I'm not sure. But yeah, he was are. he was really good though. He was really good though. And then you start um, getting into like Beanie Wells, and then you start yeah. getting into like listen, Boom Heron wasn't a world beater, but he was a pretty good darn good back and played in the NFL. And then all of a sudden you're getting into like Carlos Hyde and Ezekiel Elliott and J.K. Dobbins. So like I, I know what they're saying. Um, and this is getting down to what I said. This is person the three one seven. I think I am underestimating how good the run game will be. I think Teague could be much better than people think. I also think I am overestimating the defense. The interior line is a big issue, and I'm not sure the secondary will be anywhere close to last year. I see the Buckeyes being very good, but not on the level of Clemson or Bama. But this person does think they're underestimating the run game. And then from the 216, I think I may be wrong about Trey Sermon. I've been thinking he's just another Mike Weber type. However, I think there's a real chance that at the end of the year, we may be saying he's even more dynamic than J.K. Dobbins. All the analytics like PFF love him and think he's one of the top three or four backs in the country. He's obviously extremely motivated, appears to be finally healthy, and he's been producing at Oklahoma since he was a true freshman. With this offensive line and passing attack, I think it's possible he averages seven yards a carry, shows himself as a dangerous receiving back, and gets picked in the second round of the draft. That's from the 216. My phone number is not in the 216. I could have written that. That's mine. I've been sort of on this. I've been leading the Trey Sermon skepticism since the minute he transferred here. And a lot of people started saying some of those things. Hey, he might be more dynamic than JK. Hey, this guy might even get drafted higher than JK. Hey, he had injuries at Oklahoma. He's completely healthy. I still don't buy it, but I might be a hundred percent wrong on that. That guy might, that if you know, this guy might wind up being sneaking, you know, the 40th pick in the draft or something and running people over all year. I'm a little skeptical of the, like the, the running style and that kind of thing. I'm a little skeptical of him being like a really a true lead back kind of guy, which is what this person will be talking about. If I'm wrong, like this person thinks they might be wrong. It's not that like Trey Sermon is like leads the running back combo. It's like that Trey Sermon looks like the best running back in the big 10 and looks like at the level nationally, like right below Travis Etienne and Najee Harris, then there's Trey Sermon. I mean, if that happens, I'm wrong. And I, I have in the back of my head that maybe, because a lot of people are saying those things and some of the PFF stuff, there's some of the analytics that do love him. And I like leaning on those analytics. I just don't see it, but there's a lot of people on this beat who are really optimistic about him. So I could be really, really wrong about Trey Sermon. Do you guys think I might be 
really wrong about Trey Sermon. It depends on what I mean, because you're, you're not saying he's like bad. You're not saying he's necessarily even like ordinary. You're just saying you don't think he's like all American level. I think he's fine. My anticipation right. is he's fine and maybe not as good as Master Teague and that there are times when like he's not hitting holes that are there. And it's like, man, I, I this guy looks like a running back, but he's not really producing like one. But like he's fine. That's really what I'm expecting. If he's like running people over and breaking huge runs and feeling like he is a absolutely focal part of the offense and they can lean on him in big games, then I'm really wrong. There's there's a world – he's not going to be what Justin Fields was as a transfer, but there's a world where he can be what Jonah Jackson was for that offensive line, and he's just a piece they 100% needed, and you didn't realize it until they got on the field. And I think that's the world he lives in. I don't know if necessarily that's the world you want – when you say he can just be fine, I don't know if that's the expectation you have for him to be what Jonah Jackson was for the offensive no, line. And the I don't, right, I would say, yeah. He, he does, he's his, not he's not saying he's going to be the Jonah Jackson of running backs because right, if he's right. the Jonah so, yeah. Jackson of running backs, Ohio State's in really good shape. Right, and I think, yes, that's a world that I think is possible for Trey Sermon. Yeah, and then I would be wrong. And uh, like almost the difference of like, I, I think there could there be a world where it's like, man, they win the national title, but if Trey Sermon hadn't transferred here, I'm not sure they would have. That like he's that important, mm-hmm. right? That Master right. Teague is like that Master Teague is fine, but like Trey Sermon is the guy in the playoff who they – who's getting the ball 18 times and ripping through Bama and Clemson. And then I'm just like, I was absolutely wrong from the get-go. So that's and I will back say, in my head. Like We've had plenty of now conversations with like every position group now, and everybody in some way I think has been asked about the running backs. And they've all said good things about the running backs, but nobody's been like, oh my God, you guys wouldn't believe what Trey Sermon's doing to us in practice. That hasn't been happening. Where it does sometimes happen the way they talk about certain other players, where they're like, whoa, you guys – and then now that's sometimes that's just who you happen to ask. Some people are just more exuberant than others in the way they answer those questions. Don't read too much into it, but just know that we're not we're not hearing that necessarily that he's like blowing the doors off of practice either. Not in a bad way, just that we're not hearing that that super high praise right now. Yeah. All right. So that's what we might be wrong about. Butts covered. Woo. That was a successful two hour butt covering. Uh, we're gonna do a pre. We're going to do a nine o'clock live zoom for tech subscribers. And it's going to be the Friday pod and it's going to preview the game. It's going to get nitty gritty on the game a little bit. I actually might have to learn the names of some Nebraska players. We're going to give you our picks. We're going to have texters involved and have texters make picks for the games. Maybe have texters make outrageous predictions for the game. We'll talk about those, but I think that's what we're going to try to do on Thursday nights for our Friday game preview pod is how we'll do this each week. So that was the big Thursday pod. Thanks for you guys for hanging with us. Drop reviews at Apple podcasts, read cleveland.com slash OSU. This great continuing series on regrets featuring four of the stars of the Ohio State team from Nathan and Steven. I'm Doug LaMaurice. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>